Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, Episode 7. This podcast will focus on alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests. We will paint a vivid picture of their adventures in a way which will make you feel like you have a front-row seat to recovery. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since October the 10th of 2000. I want you to know that I am a sober member of the world's largest 12-step program. Sober Shares podcast is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We do not speak for AA or have any association with them. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. Sober Shares is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We will be self-supporting via contributions made by you, the listener. You can make a donation to support us by clicking the PayPal link on our website, SoberShares.com. Any money collected will go to offset our operating expenses. This is not a for-profit venture. Our only aim is to provide you with a great podcast on recovery. Any money you send us will be used to improve the podcast and to cover our monthly expenses. This podcast will archive individuals who have been through the challenges and trials of alcohol addiction and have come out the other side sober and free. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. We are broadcasting to you from Dallas, Texas, and the United States of America. I am glad you are here and hope you find what you are looking for. My great aspiration is that you are enriched by Sober Shares and want to bless others by clicking the subscribe, share, or review button on your listening device now. And now, it's time to meet our guest for this episode of Sober Shares. I'm going to turn it over to him and let him give his name and his sobriety date. Hi, my name is Tad, and I'm an alcoholic. All right, Tad. All right, we're so glad you're here. Tad is one of my personal friends. I've known him for a few years. And if you've listened to any of our previous episode, he has been mentioned directly or indirectly, I think at least three times already on this podcast. So I figured it was perfect timing to catch him before he uh, becomes indisposed and leaves town for a couple weeks. So I appreciate you making time in your busy schedule to get with us today. My pleasure. Can you tell us about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where were you born? Well, my father was a real estate developer. We were from Dallas. We lived in University Park. And during that time, he was um, tasked with a project in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so my family boxed up and moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I was born there. I'm the only one of my siblings that wasn't born at Baylor Hospital in Dallas. That's where I was born. You already knew I that, knew that from listening <laughs> to previous podcasts. Totally. And so my daughter and my siblings like to tease me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my, as I mentioned, my father was a real estate developer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had an older brother who was 18 years older from her first marriage. I had an older sister who was nine years older from her second marriage. Mm-hmm. Myself and my little sister were from her third marriage, my father. Okay. Wow. What was your um, church life or spiritual life growing up? What what were you guys doing uh, as far as the spirituality deal was concerned? You know, we only lived in Tulsa for a year. We moved back to University Park, and we attended an Episcopal church over in University Park. Mm -hmm. And my experience with that was we weren't a real regular church-going family, uh, most of my friends went to the same church. So when I would spend the night with them, we would go to church. We periodically would want to see and be seen at church. Mm-hmm. Um, the Episcopal religion is very kind of structured with these interactive conversations that the minister has with the congregation. And so there was a lot of um, back and forth, uh, you know, father be with you and also with you you know the people would repeat Mm -hmm. and so there were these 
these sayings and these responses that everybody was supposed to know. And, and we didn't go often enough for me to know them. So would you just mumble? So or I always just felt a little bit out of place, like that I didn't get the instruction book that everybody else was given. Tell me a little bit about your childhood as far as like where you were at in your head. Did you have a good childhood? Was it a struggle? Did you just have the best time ever? What was your childhood like? You know, for the first six years, um, I really lived in Camelot. My family did bop around a little bit because of my father's real estate career. And so we got to live in a lot of really fancy places and do a lot of really fancy things with a lot of really fancy people. Mm -hmm. And so we lived on a couple of islands in Thousand Islands, New York. We lived in Malibu. Um, wow. We lived in a couple of pretty exclusive communities up near Chicago, Kenilworth mm -hmm. and Barrington. Wow. And, um, and so it really, I spent a lot of time with my father in my early childhood years before, you know, we had to be in school full time. Um, we would spend a lot of time on golf courses, card rooms, boardrooms, um, you know, with 50 men sitting at a conference table. He must have been like your hero, right? When you were a little kid. He was definitely my idol. And as a matter of fact, Tad is a nickname okay. that I, a childhood nickname that I still use. And um and i'm a junior and so my father thought i was a tad of him like a small part of him is that what it means and that's where i got my nickname wow do you have any thoughts tell me about malibu did you, do you have any thoughts on on malibu do you have any memories of living there i you know i don't have much of a memory i remember walking out to the beach with my mother and looking at the waves from some kind of a concrete platform and we didn't spend much of the time. We may have been there during the winter. I don't know. But um, we, he built some buildings in Pacific Palisades. I'm not even quite sure where that is. but Sounds legit. Um, it was. And and um, so, you know, the, one of the most exciting times was the time up in Thousand Islands, New York, living on an island in the middle of the St. Lawrence Seaway in these three-story Victorian houses with, you know, full staffs and little buttons next to the light switches to ring the kitchen, let them know you wanted service. And dude, I would have felt like a little gangster living that life. And uh, <laughs> it was definitely that kind of thing. So and you were happy every day, pretty stoked, or were you like? I was stoked. It was just the you know, thank it was God. just one of the most amazing childhoods. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. That is so cool. I came from a similar background. I mean, I had struggles, of course, and little obstacles that I had to overcome in my life, but you will never hear me say on this podcast or anywhere else that I came from a uh, family that uh, like really abused me or ignored me or, you know, treated me like I was just a little dummy. I mean, I knew I grew up knowing that my family loved me and that they cared about me and that they wanted the best for me. And they kept trying to like teach me all these rules and, you know, ways to behave. And um, some of them I accepted. And some of them I did not accept. And I had to learn them later in life. And, and a lot of the things that I feel like that, that my family tried to teach me coming up that I chose to ignore or just couldn't get the lesson, I had to um, relearn um, how to uh, make that behavior or those mindsets part of my life through recovery. But it took me getting sober to be able to get the wheels turning in those areas of conduct in my life because I just became lost in a lot of ways through my, through my drug and alcohol addiction. And I haven't really said it here on this podcast before. Um, there's been something that's on my heart. We're in episode seven, seven. Let me, let me say a couple of things that I haven't said on this podcast before that I really want to say. First of all, just to let y'all know, listeners, I am an alcoholic and a drug addict. I didn't know if you knew that or not. I haven't really said it, but guess what? I'm a full blown alcoholic and I'm a full blown drug addict. There. I said it. Second thing I want to say is 
in recovery from both, you know, sober from both. Um, the second thing I want to say that I haven't said on this podcast is, yeah, the name of this podcast is Sober Shares. It's alcohol recovery stories. We talk about, you know, how alcohol did a lot of damage to our guests and how we recovered this, that, and the other. But I want you to know as a listener, I do not hate alcohol. I am not against it. You know, I don't, there's, there's a lot of things about it that, that are damaging this, that, and the other, but I just don't want you to think that I'm like a crusader against it. You know, for example, my wife drinks wine when we go out to dinner and that's okay with me. I don't berate her or ask her not to. And everybody has to travel their own lane and their own path. And there have been times in early sobriety where I did have to ask people not to drink around me, but I'm in a place now where I've had a spiritual experience and I feel like I'm safe and protected from a lot of those things. So Everybody has to do their own thing, but I just want you to know that I don't walk around hating alcohol as, as an entity all day, every day, and I'm not trying to bash bash it. I just know for me that I frightfully, uh, let me say this and then we'll get back to the interview. I feel like drinking is a privilege. It's not a right, it's a privilege. And, and what happened with me and my experience is I abused the, the privilege of drinking alcohol so thoroughly and mightily and profoundly that it's no longer an option for me. I can't partake of, of that liquid because I'm an alcoholic. Now you can do whatever you want. You know, if you're not an alcoholic, go ahead and get it. I mean, that's fine. But I, I have chosen not to partake anymore because I've demonstrated the ability that me personally, I can't handle it. So those are two things I wanted to get out there and, and let the listener know. When did you first become aware of alcohol? And what were your initial thoughts about it? Do you remember seeing your mom and dad drink or did you see it on TV or how'd you, how'd you find out about alcohol when you were little? You know, it was the early sixties when I was growing up and my father would come home every night and sit in his chair with his camel, no filter burning and have either a Budweiser beer or a glass of scotch or something next to him mm -hmm. while we sat and watched TV. Yeah. And you know, we were watching shows like the Rifleman and, Dick Van Dyke and Lucy and Ricky and in all those shows, mm -hmm. they all drank. Yeah. And when they drank, mm -hmm. it was, and then they got drunk. It was funny. Mm -hmm. They'd slur, they'd bounce off walls. They'd, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. It was always humorous. Certainly, you know, Andy Griffith with Otis letting himself in and out of the jail cell <laughs> and, um, and it being no big deal at being humorous. Okay. What's funny about that show that I rec recognized later in life after, you know, I got into recovery, Otis was the only one on the whole show that was married. Aunt B, Andy, Barney, everybody else was single. Okay. The drunk was married. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I do remember that show and I do, <laughs> I do remember him letting himself in and out of jail with, uh, with, uh, keys and he was drunk and that's why he was putting himself in jail. Right? Yes. And he, <laughs> I, I watched an episode recently on one of the nostalgia TV channels uh -huh. and they were having some state inspector come to inspect their jail. And Otis was letting himself out and Barney was saying, you know, can't you stay just a little while longer <laughs> so we don't look like some little podunk town that never has anybody in jail. And he said, I can't Barney. It's choir practice tonight. Oh, <laughs> that is so good. That is so good. Okay. So, uh, paint a little bit more of a picture for me. You, you saw it on TV. You thought it was funny. Let me ask you a follow-up question about your dad. Do you, did your dad drink a drink or several drinks a night? I mean, was it a seven day a week deal? You know, I didn't notice. I just knew there was always one there. Okay. And so, uh, you know, as he would go to the bathroom, I would smel it. Right. Or I would, um, what'd you, you think know, about it? Take the a smell. sip off the beer uh, or uh, something. He's a bad boy. You know, I didn't really think much about it. I just wanted to be just like my dad. I just wanted to check it out. Okay. And so, 
Um, it wasn't till much later in our story here that we'll get into how aware I became of that. Okay. So, um, do you have an age frame for us when maybe you did start taking your first few drinks and, and can you tell us a little bit about how that made you feel in the beginning? You know, um, my parents, so we were living in Barrington, Illinois, and, um, we moved back to university park and the company was closing their office in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And when we moved back, my big my big brother was already off at college or even married at that point. And my big sister and my little sister and I moved back to university park and my dad didn't move with us. And so I asked mom about where's dad, mm -hmm. you know, when's he coming? And she told me that my father was, she said, your father's an alcoholic okay. and I'm getting, we're getting a divorce and he can't live with us anymore. But if he would quit drinking, I've told him we could keep the family together. And so, but he would come home and he would kick the dog across the floor and he would jerk the phone out of the wall and he would knock her around and I can't take this anymore. One day we're getting brand new Cadillacs. The next day the, the house is up for foreclosure. Okay. And, you know, I was, you know, it was also a different time in America. This was 1969, 1970. Mm -hmm. And there, the women in, had gone crazy. And they were burning their bras in piles in the street on mm -hmm. the five o'clock news. Mm -hmm. And there was something called women's lib. And they were saying they weren't going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what they had been taking, but mm -hmm. they weren't going to take it anymore. Right. And um, so I found myself alone in a house full of man hating women that were giving me the message that men were bad and men were evil and men weren't to be trusted or they were to be used as I knew because my mother was, you know, my father was her third husband. And so life changed for me that day from that point, you know, I got the message as a 10 year old kid that you're not worth loving. If you were worth loving, your father would quit drinking to stay with you. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're not worth it from that point forward. Since I had those feelings on the inside, not being worth loving, I tried super extra hard to get anyone's attention. And I felt like I had to try super hard to get you to like me. So my first experience with alcohol was really in fourth grade. I don't remember drinking like for effect, but I know in fourth grade, I took a jar, I tried to take a jar, a baby food jar full of white wine mm -hmm. to school in my lunch. Did you get caught? Did you get busted? I broke it on the way to school. Oh, on purpose so never, or accident? No accident. I you dropped it. Yeah, I dropped it and uh, it broke. And so I ditched the lunch. And, you know, that's a perfect example in our program. One of the promises is God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So it probably saved me a lot of trouble and a lot of aggravation. That's just a lot. It's a lot for me to think about and a lot for me to hear that, you, that your mother had that conversation with you and, and told you those things. And then you had those emotional reactions to that situation. Um, were there follow-up conversations with her about how's dad doing? Is he going to come back? Was, did, did somebody keep hope alive that, that he was coming back and this thing might work out or no. Um, the simple fact that he, you know, that the umbilical cord was cut, mm -hmm. you know, that he was gone. Right. Um, there wasn't, 
you know, there weren't cell phones back in the day. We weren't, you know, all the phone calls like that were long distance. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no communication between he and I. And because he had abandoned me, Mm -hmm. is the way I felt, I was angry. Okay. And I didn't want to talk to him. If he didn't want me, fine. I don't want him either. Did you see any signs uh, in the home that that trouble was brewing? That they that your dad might have a drinking problem? That your parents might split up? Or were you just caught off guard? So you know, one of the things I kind of glazed over is when you know when he's kicking the dog and jerking the phone out of the wall and hitting my mom. All that stuff happens at two o'clock in the morning. Okay, I'm a ten year old kid. I've been asleep since eight thirty. Okay. So I didn't see any of that. Okay. And I think my big sister probably protected me from some of that also. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, she was 16, 17, 18. Yeah. She was very aware. Mm-hmm. And she was very scared Okay, of that man who would come home volatile yeah. and be hitting people and kicking animals. and right. And she was doing her best to avoid that situation, too. I've talked to so many people in life in general that in recovery that uh, it really depends on what age you are, how you see and interpret what's going on in the home. In other words, if you have an older sister that's five to 10 years older than you, they see and interpret the situation completely different than you do. Even though they were living at the same house at the same time with the same parents, they experienced it totally different. You know, there's sometimes... I've heard um, some families, they're like, the older the older ones are like, oh, yeah, mom was totally an alcoholic. And they start talking about that when they're adults at 30 or 40. And the youngest one is like, what? What are you talking about? Or the oldest one who is five years older who has already gone off to college and maybe is in the Army and, and married and has kids. They look at the one that's saying that mom was an alcoholic. And they're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you already gone. You didn't see it, you know? So it's just weird how people experience the same yeah, thing differently. You know, I was having to take... Uh, my mother's word for Mm -hmm. that my hero was Mm -hmm. this monster wow and i didn't necessarily trust her to give me accurate information okay and so you know i felt like there wasn't any there wasn't any safe place at home to deal with this Mm -hmm. and it was you know i didn't really have my father to help me deal with this either so um, there was just nowhere to go with it. I don't know what you're going to answer this. I don't know how you're going to answer this question, but I would assume with all that inter emotion and turmoil and things turning and burning inside of you, I would assume that you maybe took to alcohol like a duck to water. Absolutely. <laughs> so I remember the first time I was really exposed to friends drinking. My mother was hanging around um, with this other lady that she had met in what would now be divorce care. Then it was just group therapy with other single parents. And it was next door to the Preston group over in Preston Center. It was in Douglas Plaza building. And um, she had made friends with this woman who had three kids, Mm -hmm. one a little bit older than me, one just a tad bit older than me. And then his little sister, who was my little sister's age. Mm -hmm. And we would go over to their house and hang out with them. And one day I went to their house. They lived, they rented a house over in Holland Park. And we came in the front door and I said, where's John? And she said, He's in he's his rooms in the back house and she had allowed her son to move into their garage apartment in the back of their home in the backyard and live out there kind of by himself. And I had really never been exposed to any kid that had that much freedom. Mm-hmm. And I went back there and he was drinking had a big old green bottle of some kind of wine and he was drunk. 
you know, I mentioned that I would try extra hard to get you to like me. Well, I knew that was wrong. I knew that um, kids didn't drink and get drunk. But I also knew what happened to kids that would object to what their friends were doing. They wouldn't be included. They wouldn't be welcomed. They wouldn't be asked over again. I don't remember drinking with him, but I, I certainly remember not saying anything about what he was doing mm-hmm. and just kind of going along with the plan so that I wouldn't be subject to those kind of that kind of scrutiny. Yeah, that's amazing. What about uh, when you started drinking on a regular basis or your first couple times? How old were you when that happened and what that look like? So probably late 14, early 15, my friends started drinking. And again, I found it very uh, easy to learn how to mix drinks mm-hmm. in everybody's house. You know, in, in our area, it was kind of an affluent area. They had these mirror lined glass shelf bars in their home with cabinets of alcohol underneath and, you know, wet bars. And, and uh, if there wasn't enough alcohol underneath, you could go out to the garage and there were cases lined along the wall from the last party they had yeah. so finding alcohol was never a problem right and a, lot of, a lot of houses in that area have second refrigerators in the garage correct so and you so, go to the second refrigerator yeah. um yeah if you have a refrigerator exclusively for alcohol in your garage there may be a problem but yeah. they um i got real good at mixing drinks and so we'd break out a blender and and a and a you know a bunch of ice and use kool-aid or lemonade or grape juice or something Mm -hmm. and mix that with you know alcohol in a blender and make it taste like a slurpee and Mm -hmm. and um so there was also no problem with finding parents who were out of town on the weekends and having the party over at their house or parents that would even condone it yeah well no i never had we, we really never had that um First of all, nobody was really getting in trouble. Even the adults were rarely getting in trouble. Um, usually in my community, if you were caught drinking and driving as an adult, mm-hmm. they would just give you a ride home. Because your driver's license said that you lived in that city? Yeah, 75205, 75225. You know. what, what did the police, and this is maybe either a guess or a known fact on your part, what did they do to the people that they pulled over that weren't from that neighborhood in that zip code? Oh, I'm sure they were arrested. They got to go yeah. to jail. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys, they would just say. Well, and because they, they never knew that, you know, if they're pulling over somebody who has a, you know, who's a congressman's son or something to that effect. And they didn't want to create any problems on themselves. It was a real good old boys club. Did they follow you home or tell you to go home or drive you home? I would think most of the time they loaded you in their car and drove you home. Or if you were close enough, they would follow you home or just tell you to go home. Right. I'm 50 years old and I grew up my entire life in America. And just to let the listeners know the way that the uh, government entities and everybody feels about alcohol now is not how they felt about it and treated it back when I was young. Uh, it didn't used to be uh, a big a deal. It is now. Oh, it wasn't against the law to drink. have yeah. to drink while you were driving. Yeah. You used to be able to have open containers when I was younger and I would see people at stoplights. I'd be sitting in my car with my mom and dad and I'd look over left and the guy would have a Budweiser sitting between his legs and he would drink the Budweiser at the stoplight with impunity and no fear. In high school, I dated a girl who's <laughs> Father was a Texas state judge. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he was responsible for putting Bob Hayes away for 10 years for less than a gram of cocaine. Wow. And he never went anywhere without a six pack of, of beer in the front seat of his car. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Well, things have changed now. I remember when things started to change and I started to hear how much these um, DWIs in Texas were starting to cost people. And 
people started throwing out numbers like $20,000 on your first offense. And I was like, yo, that is a lot of money. And, and a lot of time and a lot of energy. Yeah. So thank God I'm not playing in that that arena right now. Um, so you can go either way with this next question. The, the next question is, how did alcohol either help you or hurt you during the beginning parts of your drinking? You know, I want to say it helped. Um, certainly, you know, as, um, you know, we were drinking 15, 16 years old, you know, especially with the women, candy dandy, but liquor's quicker. Yeah. Um, it made their inhibitions less. It made our inhibitions less. Nobody that I knew was getting in real, you know, jeopardy trouble. We were just talking, you know, kissing and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, nobody I ever knew in high school got pregnant. Do you think that looking back in hindsight, when you started to drink and you started to feel the effects of those slurpy flavored drinks that you're making, I want to ask you specifically, do you feel like that when you started to feel the alcohol and stuff, do you feel like it helped you with your emotional pain or trauma and confusion over your parents' uh, situation? Or were you not aware of that? I wasn't aware of it. Um, and, and I don't think it um, helped that situation. I'd really never thought I, I still didn't know alcoholism. I mean, she said he was an alcoholic, but mm -hmm. I still didn't know what that was. Okay. Did you ever have blackouts? Were you a blackout drinker? I, I never really had any. I, people talk about it all the time, and I'm like, dude, I remember everything, and it was horrifying. I don't yeah, I, um, I don't remember blacking out. I don't remember many mornings waking up. And, I mean, for the first, you know, foggy hour, it may have been, mm -hmm. you know, did I really drive home? And, oh, yeah, I remember that, you mm -hmm. know. And so it would take a minute to for the for the little reel to reel tape back then to come into play and pull up those memory banks. But yeah, um, but I usually remembered everything. I feel so sorry for those people that I know that have blackouts and they said they would wake up the next morning and they'd be like, "Where's my car?" Yeah, and they would go outside and it wasn't there. Or did I hit anybody? Or is yeah, there blood on the dude, car? I used to hear that people would go walk around the front of the car and look for whiskey dents and walk around the side and yeah. look for whiskey dents and. And they're like, oh. Uh, I fortunately, hope. I remembered every den I put in my car. Yeah, for real. Um, so tell me a little bit about when your drinking uh, progressed to a point where others around you or you yourself even might have thought that you might have a small problem. Possibly. You know, I in, in in once I became once I got into recovery, I started thinking about, you know, how my mindset's always been. It was more of a drug thing. And we'll talk about that. We don't know anything about your drugs. Well, in, in so, but when I got um, into college and really how that started was very late high school, I was over at that same friend's house that I saw drinking for the very first time. The kid with the green jug of wine. And the, and then one of his friends who I'd been introduced to and become friends with mm -hmm. um, had come over one night. We were all at his house and, and, and the other person showed up. And he had brought over pot. Mm -hmm. And again, I, you know, I was terrified. I knew this is wrong. I knew we don't do this. It's illegal. I mean, it's <laughs> illegal. I, I remember, you know, our advisory class at high school looked out on this street. And I think probably every high school has one, at least did then. Um, we called it Freak Street. <laughs> and it's where the kids that would smoke cigarettes uh -huh. and maybe drink before classes yeah. and stuff and even smoke pot mm -hmm. and the bell would ring and we would see them out there. They acted like they didn't even hear it. 
<laughs> and then they would come in 10 minutes late in this cloud of cigarette smoke. And I would think, don't you know the teachers can smell that? Yeah. And you're going to get in like real trouble. Yeah. And sometimes they even came in smelling like pot. And then it was like, oh my gosh, do y'all see this? <laughs> and I knew from looking at that time, I was like, we're not like them. And we're the socials that drink on the weekends at somebody's house and we're having parties and we're having fun. And so when that kid brought weed over that day, um, I was like, we're not like that. We don't do this. And till we did. And of course, what kicked in was they're not going to invite you back. They're not going to want you to hang around here anymore if you don't partake with them. That's the same thoughts and feelings you had the first time you met that kid when he was drinking that glass That's of correct. Milk. So to fit in. Was it in the same structure in the same? Same, you know, friend group. And yeah. so I just thought, okay. And I had known that some of my other friends who I considered friends mm -hmm. had started doing that. And mm -hmm. so I had even started feeling a little left out of what was going on as the mature, you know, being as maturing through high school. Were they smoking joints or they had, yeah, yeah mostly joints. So tell me about your drug progression from there. Did you, okay, first of all, did you like the marijuana? So when, really? so when I, did, I, I held off for, you know, an hour or so that Good night boy. and, Good boy. and then finally, you know, I just succumbed with them and, and, uh, uh and I, would love to say that I hated it and I never did that again. <laughs> My reaction was exactly the opposite. Yeah. I saw the music and color that night. Yeah. And you guys I ended up ordering a pizza or anything they, like they, that. We went to Taco Bell. Thank we locked you, the keys in the car. You know, everybody was rolling in the parking lot laughing about Can't it. Can't breathe. You're laughing um, so hard. And, you know, it made us hungry, happy, and giggly. Yeah. And, you know, my, my first thought was, why does anybody, you know, drink like the way I did? Because uh -huh. what happened for me was I would drink, the room would spin, I would throw up all night long, and then I would feel horrible the next day. Right. And then now we got this new substance yeah. and that makes you hungry, happy, and giggly, and you're not hung over the next day. Okay. And I thought, you know what? Those grown-ups have been lying to us. Mm -hmm. And if they've lied to us about this, what else are they lying about? Mm-hmm. And so by the time I got to college, you know, my favorite drugs were, what do you got? Really? And so. Did your mom, did your parents ever notice that what was going on with you? You know, you were changing? my little sister ratted me out at the end of high school. Um, she was grounded one weekend. She had already been um, discovered that she had been smoking pot mm -hmm. a lot earlier than I did. Right. And, um, but I was going out on the weekends and she knew that I was going to do exactly what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so one night it was like, you know, standing behind my mom's shoulders. Why don't you tell her about the bag in your sock drawer? And why don't you tell her about the bong in your, you know, in your study? And, and she just laid me out. And um, so they did know. The strange thing was mom had gotten remarried and my stepfather was a psychiatrist. He worked at the VA hospital. He started the alcohol dependence and drug treatment program at the VA in Dallas. Wow. It was one of the first the ones in Texas. Okay. And there was one in Waco, and then the rest of them they just sent to Terrell that was, State Hospital. We talked about the VA yesterday on this podcast. So that was your mom's fourth marriage, yeah? That was her fourth marriage. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to keep Yeah, going. no, me too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you like that dude? Was he seem like a good dude or you know, horrible guy? When, or it, when we first met him, I thought he was the biggest geek on the planet. He yeah. drove the wrong car. He wore the wrong clothes. He smoked cigarettes. He um, had a mustache. He was pasty white he was just the exact opposite of what i wanted yeah i wanted a father a new father that would take me hunting and fishing and 
outdoorsy and tan and buff and you know mm-hmm. and he was just none of those things okay um it was strange that even though he was head of this alcoholic dependence and drug treatment program taught you know dealt with veterans every day with drug problems and alcohol problems never saw a big book never heard anything about the 12 steps um it was and he knew that you know we were all doing this and still no word of any of that i mean we got no benefit of that education mm-hmm. so um so yeah that was weird that, that yeah. and so i you know i didn't really now throughout life as i grew older college you know growing old um he turned out to be just the best thing in the world that could have ever happened to us wow. and my mom told me at the time cuz she was good at not keeping secrets you know he's a doctor he's going to be able to keep us in highland park so that you can finish school here we will be you know he will keep us in the life that we become accustomed okay and he's nice to me and those were the criteria for her okay and so that's what happened okay wow um so you get into college your 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 drugging has progressed a little bit are you backing off the drinking at this point because the drugging is easier no i pledged a fraternity the weekend i got to school yeah um the day i got there really and where'd you go to college do you want to say Stephen f austin okay the lumberjacks are they yeah yeah, the lumber jokes is what we call them (laughs) how dare you um (laughs) and we and i pledged uh, a national fraternity i was a fidel i am a fidel and um the very first weekend they when we pledged the fraternity that day the ritual ceremony we all went to this guy's apartment we had a huge kamikaze party um drank 15 or 20 pitchers of kamikazes between 15 or 20 of us and Mm -hmm. um all got completely smashed they gave us an hour to get back home get showered shaved and back up to a club where we were hosting a fundraising happy hour at these clubs you know like a beer bust Mm -hmm. and on the way back to the dorm to get dressed i got pulled over by a policeman Mm -hmm. and i had a bad attitude he Uh asked me to follow him down the police station so we could take care of this ticket today i had no idea what he was talking about we got there and he told me to take off my belt and my shoes and he threw me in in jail Mm -hmm. for uh he held me for a bond for a running a stop sign ticket was the charge so when i got in front of the judge the next morning because <laughs> they didn't give me a phone call mm-hmm. um he said uh mr you know miss black you're charged with running a stop sign son why are you in jail and i was like i don't know and he was like okay well the fine's 32 dollars. at seven dollars a day if you work and five dollars a day if you don't and I said, if you'll just give me a phone call, I'll get out of here. And, and I got a phone call and the whole fraternity came and picked me up and me and my fraternity brother that was with me mm-hmm. when we got arrested. And he, he did get a public intoxication charge. Wow. You, you should have totally got a DWI. There. Oh yeah, totally. Was it a campus cop or no. a, a city cop? Nacogdoches police. Okay. So let's So my first night at college, I spent the night in the Nacogdoches jail. First time I'd ever seen anything like that. Wow. Did you tell your parents about that? My mom never knew. He never told her. She's going to find out now. Maybe if she's still alive, no, she can yeah, hear this. She's gone. I did tell her before. Oh, you finally came. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> did did others ever confront you about your drinking or start to ask you questions about your behavior? Because people rolled up on me as early as high school. So when I so let's kind of circle back to what I was saying earlier, which was um, so drinking and drugging pretty much cost me my education. Okay, what do you um, mean by that? I majored in fraternity. I <laughs> worked it like a business. I loved being a business. I loved making money for the fraternity you know, arranging spaghetti dinners and promoting them and building advertising and, you know, that kind of stuff for our functions. And mm -hmm. um, so I would get outrageously drunk at those events. And usually I would stand there in that party kind of bobbing and weaving and feeling bad and too drunk and hoping that everybody didn't know how drunk I was. Yeah. And often I would get in some kind of scrape or some kind of argument or some kind of hit on the wrong girl or something that would end up being awkward and uncomfortable. Did and you get sloppy when you were very sloppy? Did you get and a little mouthy, mouthy, <laughs> sloppy, stumbling, Did you ever get slurring. physical with people? Did you ever think, you know, like, I'm not much of a fighter, um, pushing people, but around. they would, you know, I would put myself in, in the position of them wanting to get physical with me. And, um, and that's usually when somebody would drag me away and it was time to go home. I had a friend like that and we always had to watch out for him. And so I, I remember after, so, you know, by my second year of college, I literally, when I decided to go to class, which was only when the guilt got so strong, I just felt like I had to, mm -hmm. um, I had to go by the registrar's office to even find out where I was supposed to be because <laughs> I just didn't even know what I had signed up for or where I was supposed to be or where to even find the class. Wow. And then I'd walk in the class and it's like, you know, they're all strangers. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know the teacher. They didn't know me. You know, it was just too uncomfortable to go. So um, after two years of college, my my parents were like, you need to come home and get a job. We're not paying for this anymore. Mm -hmm. And I would go back on the weekends to see the fraternity sometimes and go to parties and stuff. And I can remember one weekend I was going back to Nacogdoches and I thought, you know, this weekend I am not going to drink because when I go, I'm going to cause some kind of problem and that's how they're going to remember me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really think about that until I got in recovery and started thinking, well, it was mostly drugs. It wasn't really alcohol. And I thought, you know what? You were 20 years old and you had already recognized that alcohol was a huge problem for you. And, and so alcohol really is an issue for you, whether you want to admit it or not. And of course, at this point, I'm sur thoroughly succumbed to that idea. But how'd that weekend go? The pledge you made, driving. So you know, what's funny is I didn't. I I think I did smoke pot that weekend, but I didn't drink, so I didn't get in any trouble. And I we went to multiple parties, and I remember at the very last party they were playing quarters, and somebody made it, and they slid the. It was more like a shot glass of beer over to me, mm -hmm. and I took it out of peer pressure. Mm -hmm. um, but we left right after that. We were heading back to the fraternity house where I was staying for the weekend. Mm -hmm. It was about two o'clock in the morning, and I thought, you know, when we get, we usually paid this pool game, like this game in the swimming pool in the backyard, um, late at night. And I thought, when I get back to the house and we go, to, you know, go to the pool and stuff then I can have a couple of beers, you know, then I'll be just with my fraternity brothers and there'll just be a few of them and, and I'll be able to drink a few beers. And on the way back to the fraternity house that night, some other college kids that were leaving a, we'll call it a taco bell in the middle of the night, pulled across the highway, like in front of all the traffic. And I T-boned them going about 65 miles an hour. It totaled my car, it totaled their car. 
Um, they were lucky they weren't killed for sure. We were probably also, this was way before any cars had airbags. And I mean, the cars were literally leaned up against each other in the air at the end of the accident. And, um, the policeman arrested all of them for DWI and came to me and said, you know, dude, you're 20 years old. It's two o'clock in the morning. Um, they've all been arrested for DWI. And I think I wouldn't be doing my job unless I at least tested you. And, and I you, said, and you'd only had the one shot yeah. glass. And I said, let's go. And we went back to the Nacogdoches police department and I blew into this machine. 0.1. or something. Yeah. And he was like, you're free to go. And I came walking out the front door and my friends were standing outside and they were like, no one leaves the Nacogdoches police department at three o'clock in the morning. That's oh. amazing. And so is that the same weekend that you were driving down there? And before you got there, you're like, I'm not going to drink this yes. weekend. And That's then you just had weekend. one shot glass yeah. and then the God car doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Wow. Wow. What other techniques did you use, if any, to try to control and enjoy your drinking? Oh, everything. Mostly I would just set my mind to, <laughs> you're going to have, you're going to limit it to this number of drinks and then that never happened. What were some of the things you would say to yourself? Can you give us a, a you insight You know, I remember one, one night, uh, one day I was down in, at, in Padre Island area. I was with my cousin, lives down in Brownsville, and they were having a party. And, and mm -hmm. I wasn't drinking. And, um, and he asked me to go back over to his house. I was at a friend's house. He said, can you go back over to my house and get that bottle of vodka or whatever out of the freezer and mm -hmm. bring it back over here? Yeah. And because he knew everybody and I didn't know anybody. So I was, you know, I was the runner. Yeah. And uh, so I ran back over there and I opened up that freezer and there was a bottle of Patron. And I had always wanted to try Patron. Yeah. And so I was out of town. I was by myself and I thought, I will try a shot of this tequila. Mm -hmm. Before the end of the night, I think I'd had six or seven shots. I was, you know, drunk. And uh, so... You know, I just don't, I, I say often that work's the only thing I do well in moderation. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people out there that can relate to that. All right. Uh, let's move forward uh, post-college and into your young adult uh, hood and, and kind of just paint a picture of us what that period in your look like and was alcohol actively moving around in your life or was it dormant at that point? What was going on? No. So I was, I was still drinking and I was still using whatever drugs I could get my hands on. And, um, and I was working. Mm -hmm. And so I came back to college, as I mentioned before, and my parents were like, you need to get a job. Well, I went to a couple, I went to some community college stuff and some commercial college stuff. And I got a real estate license because my friends, my older friends that I'd grown up with and started using drugs and alcohol with, they were all in the real estate business. They were making a lot of money in Dallas. Yeah. And my father had been in the real estate business. So I wanted to be just like dad. And so I got a real estate license and I interviewed a lot and it was the middle eighties and we were kind of steering towards the savings and loan crisis. Mm -hmm. Real estate was not good. And so I interviewed with a lot of different companies and finally got a job at this really big national real estate company. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a great job. It was a runner, but it was a runner for the owner and his little private division at the company. And so it was a highly trusted position. And um, so I was very excited about the potential that could happen from being in this position. And I went home, of course, told my parents all about it, was real excited I'd gotten a job. And, and I was living with them, of course. I was, you know, 20 years old, 21. 
And um, then I got a phone call from the human resources lady. And she said, oh, by the way, we drug test all the new employees. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is not going to go well. And so I couldn't not get this job because I failed a drug test. And so I quit. And long enough to get through this drug test. And then I could go find out what my friends had been doing for the last, you know, month or so. And, um, and then, you know, in the middle twenties, I met this girl, mom actually introduced me to her and just angelic, beautiful woman. And, and she wanted to give up her life in San Antonio where my parents had moved and come back to Dallas with me and run my new business that I had started. And, and, um, so, I went down there to visit a few different times and I took my little pipe in my pocket and, mm-hmm. and you know, and I, I wasn't showing her that's what I was doing. I was hiding that. And, but I got the guts up to ask her, Hey, do you party? And she, she said, no, I never date anybody that used drugs. And I was like, yeah, no, me neither. I just had to make sure you weren't one of them. And um, so of course I quit and she, we ended up living together for a couple of years and, and she thought she was an alcoholic. I think I even remember going to an AA meeting with her once um, in support of her. Uh-huh. And so we never drank and we didn't use any drugs. And, um, you know, until she found the bigger, better deal and moved on. And she thought I was a, my mother had taken on a portrait painting career at this point. And she was living in this high rise condominium where this girl was the leasing agent down in San Antonio. My, my mother had just finished painting President Bush that was hanging in the Oval Office where they had gone to do this big unveiling ceremony. And she was making, you know, traveling the country, painting oil portraits all over the place. And so I'm sure this girl thought I was a little Highland Park trust fund baby and, mm-hmm. and she had scored big. And once she figured out that I wasn't that, um, she was off to better things. And, um, and then I could go find out what my what my friends had been doing for the last couple of years. But did your mom ever paint a picture of you or? Oh yeah. I have a several boards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to see them so bad. Yeah. Are they at your place? They are. Okay. I want to, and it's a picture of you. Yeah. As oh, a yeah. child or an adult or I did some, uh, right after high school, I made a few movies. She took my modeling shots and, okay, and painted, painted a portrait. She had painted one of me as, like a 10 year old with a fishing rod. And that is so cool. She loved you. Yeah. She did that. She loved you. Oh yeah. Well, she, we all had a lot of portraits. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, here you go. Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Uh, super been wondering this for 30 minutes, but haven't asked, uh, what was the deal with your, your, your birth father? I mean, the communication, I mean, I know he left, you said bailed. So, Were you all know, still talking? I remembered that I, I spoke, he came by once when we were early, like maybe 14, four or five years, four years later, five years later. Mm-hmm. And he came by with an obscure relative I had never met. They were in an RV. He was drunk the whole time. Mom still let me leave with him. Okay. Me and my little sister. Um, I remember another time he came and picked me up and we drove over to Greenville Avenue. He turned the wrong way down the two way boulevard. And then had to like bump over the curb to get over to the right side of the road. I mean, I do remember another time that I really resent. And that was, he took me over to a friend's house and, and, um, he said, go up to that door and tell him George Dickel's here to pick him up. And I had no earthly idea what that meant until years later. And I saw a billboard for George Dickel whiskey or bourbon or something. And I thought, you know, that's just not even funny. 
yeah. you know, to send your 10 year old, 12 year old kid up there. Yeah. And that, and so I really was very resentful. I'd get birthday cards every now and then of scribbled birthday cards that he would send me with a $10 check from his mom or something. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of disgusting. And I was really, I didn't even think anything about the alcohol. All I thought was he's not here and he hasn't been here for me. Okay. Wow. All right. So it's about time to get you sober here as far as the, uh, the story is concerned, but I want to ask you before we get you sober, uh, were you actively in your mind, cognitively aware of the fact that you might be an alcoholic or a drug addict as you were progressing through the last several weeks, days, months, and years of your drinking, or were you just oblivious to the fact that you might be I was really just oblivious. I thought all we were doing was partying. Now, the way I looked at that was I had a habit. You know, I had developed a daily habit of getting high or drinking, um, that being an active part of almost everything we did. Mm -hmm. But I thought that's all it was. And and so, and I never even considered stopping. You know, I had stopped for for the girls. Mm -hmm. I had stopped for the jobs. Mm-hmm. throughout my 20s and 30s that just that progression kept going mm-hmm. and so i would meet a girl and i would stop for her or i mm-hmm. would get a new job where they're going to drug test you and i would stop for that mm-hmm. and i was able to stop mm-hmm. not starting again was a real issue mm-hmm. and so i got into my early 40s and i was dating a girl who um, was living in shreveport and she was a mommy she had a five-year-old little girl and she was her five-year-old little girl was best friends with my five-year-old little nephew and so my sister was friends with her and i got to know her on school camp outs and things like that where i would take my nephew on those and uh, we started i started going to shreveport on the weekends and playing house with her mm-hmm. and i was still we were drinking and i was still getting high mm-hmm. and now i wasn't really doing like cocaine or anything like that in front of her but i was smoking bot Mm -hmm. and um one weekend on the way back one tuesday morning on the way back from shreveport she called me and said i'm pregnant and i got home that day and i thought about it and you know one of the things i've learned in 18 years of being in this program is you start drinking and using drugs you quit mentally maturing so at 42 years old, when this was happening, you know, I was really the mindset of a emotion. I thought about this pregnancy and, and I didn't really believe in abortion. And I looked, you know, I thought about my friends and my, my acquaintances. And I thought, you know, most of those people have gotten, they've done all this grown up stuff. They got like got married and they had kids and they bought homes and they had careers. They had bought new cars that they had car payments for, you know, all this stuff that I had never done. And so I thought it's time to do those things. You know, it's time to get a family and to buy a house and to settle down. Now I didn't even consider that it was time to stop drinking and using drugs. I just thought it was time to do the rest of that stuff. Okay. And so we got engaged and about a week later she called me and she said you know i just don't think i should give up my home in treeport my pull my daughter out of her school that she loves give up my job um and move back to dallas and put all my eggs in your basket if you can't go a day without getting loaded wow 
And so, you know, again, I'm back to where I've been several times before. It's time to stop. Mm -hmm. And this time I just couldn't stop. I mean, maybe it was because she was out of town. Nobody was really watching me. But I just couldn't get motivated to not get high every day. And so, or drink or use or whatever I was doing. And so this went on for a couple of weeks. And I kept saying, oh, yeah, I'm quitting. I'm quit, whatever, lying. Because, you know, another thing I know that if you're an addict and an alcoholic, you're a liar. Okay, you have to be a liar. You just do. I mean, back in the days with pagers, I would see my girlfriend's number come up and I would think, oh, gosh, you know, what am I going to say? I was always, you know, you call them back and what's the first thing they're going to ask you? Yeah, you sound like your voice sounds weird. (laughs) Or where are you? Yeah, what do you do? What are you doing? Who are you with? Have you been over to Tommy's house today? You know. All those questions, there's no good answers to any of those questions. <laughs> so I um, so I knew that I had been lying to her, and she kind of figured it out because my voice sounded funny and yeah. those kind of things. And so she quit taking my phone calls. And our therapist told me that we had been seeing this family therapist, and he said, you know, I think you're going to have to stop. And... And, and I just couldn't get motivated. You know, I would think, okay, let's plan for this. Yeah. Friday, by Friday, I'm yeah. going to run out of everything, and I won't do it for the weekend. And I know I'm not going to be able to eat, and I'm not going to be able to sleep for a few days. Yeah. And it's going to take a few days to get acclimated to this new way of life. It sounded like you were getting ready to get ready. And I was getting ready to get ready, and then Friday would come, and I would think, that's stupid. It's Friday. You know, quit, you on, quit, like on, a, Friday. quit on a Monday or something. Let me ask you if you ever took the drastic step of throwing all your stash and your pipes and your lighters and your alcohol. A hundred times, and you then I would that. go find it, you know, and bring it back. And so... Make a, did you make a big deal out of it, the sink, pouring everything out, oh, yeah. flushing it? You're For like, sure. <laughs> take the take the little pipe and throw it over the next door. But you would watch roof. where it would land, right? And then I'd watch where it would land, and I would go oh, find it. Let me tell you fast, quick story. This is a 30 second story. So one time I was going to try to quit. I was young and I was like, I'm smoking too much weed. I'm drinking too much. And I had my stuff in my pocket. I believe it was called a proto pipe. I had a proto pipe in my pocket and we were sitting at this stoplight by myself and I took it out and I was like, oh, I'm quitting, make a big deal of it. And I rolled the window out and I chunked it out the window and I could see it like spinning and flying going far. It was a really good throw. And it landed and it bounced. And instead of looking away and driving off, I looked and I watched where it bounced. And like I, a golf ball. Yeah, like <laughs> GPS, dude. Like GPS watching it. So guess where? Okay, that was like at 4.30 that afternoon. Guess where I was at 9.30 that night with a flashlight? Sure. Back in that field with a flashlight. Found it. Realizing I had overreacted <laughs> at 4.30 and picked it right up and, and went on down the road. Sure. <laughs> that's embarrassing. Found, that's many, a tr- found many a lighter. <laughs> that's a true story. Go ahead. And, uh, so I, uh, I just wasn't going to, and then she quit taking my phone calls and you know, at this point she's pregnant with our child. She's living, she's in another state. I was concerned that she would have an abortion. Mm-hmm. I would concern that she would have this child in a different state and not put my name on the birth certificate for at that time. I had convinced myself that I wanted this child. Yeah. So, um, I just thought, you know, I'm going to have to stop. Mm -hmm. So the only person that I knew that had stopped was that guy that first brought pot that day over to my friend's house and, you know, 27 years before, and he had gone through drug hell and had gone to several rehabs and had moved to a halfway house in Atlanta for a few years. And, but then he had moved back to Dallas and he was in Dallas 
And so I called this person and he's in our group today. And I said, dude, how did you stop? And he said, okay, well, let's talk about that. He was all excited. And he said, why don't you meet me over in Preston Center? You know where Woolworths is. It's where the hop dotty is now. Mm-hmm. And meet me on that corner about 1145. And I thought, cool. You know, I hadn't seen him in a while. And, and uh, I thought we were going to lunch mm-hmm. and we would talk about this. Mm-hmm. And so this was December the 11th, 2003. It was my 40th first birthday mm-hmm. 42nd birthday and like belly button birthday mm-hmm. and and i thought you know what i this will be good i'll quit on my birthday and that way i don't have to go through another year being you know trapped in this cycle right because i was trapped in the cycle i mean every day it was yeah 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 every, it's like groundhog day that yeah. movie every day it was how much you got how long is it going to last how good is it where are you going to get more where are you going to get the money uh, to get more is the guy going to be home <laughs> i mean it was just the wheel you know yeah, yeah, and so um i got over there and i met him on the corner and of course i hadn't seen him in a while he wasn't hanging around the likes of people like me right and we walked down the sidewalk and you know i grew up here in in that area and so preston center was my playground right it's where we rode our bikes and jumped our bikes and went to all the restaurants and did everything and played all the time Mm -hmm. well we walked in this door i'd never seen before and we were walking down this long green hall was it the little skinny long hallway that one yeah and um and i was like will where are we and new restaurant (laughs) and he was like we're in alcoholics anonymous and I was like, Alcoholics Anonymous, what are we doing here? And he said, you know, they don't like that whole drug thing. So don't say anything about the pot. Just sit down and shut up and don't say anything. And so we went in and we sat down and I shut up and I didn't say anything. And I think it was, it might've been a speaker meeting. There was certainly somebody at the podium and um, I didn't hear much. I didn't, you know, I read a few signs like on the beam and off the beam and Certainly you'd rather be on the beam than off the beam, you know, love and tolerance and patience and versus anger and fear and envy and, you know, and, um, so at the end of the meeting, the man at the podium held up this little silver coin and he said, this isn't a desire chip. It's an outward symbol of an inward desire to stay sober for one 24 hour period. Does anybody want one? And will nudge me and said, go get one of those. And so I went up to the podium and I tried to take it from the guy and he wouldn't let go of it. And he looked at me and he said, what's your name? And I thought that was weird because this was anonymous. And, and so I whispered, you know, my name is Tad. And he got on the microphone. He said, everybody say hi to Tad. And I was like, oh my gosh, what did he just do? This is wrong on a couple of different levels. And, uh, but he gave me that chip and I sat down that day and it was the end of the meeting. And I, and I, they had said things like, you know, are you coming tomorrow? and 90 meetings in 90 days and things like that and you know and and the little light bulb went off and i thought you know what this is going to get her off my back and it did and uh but i knew it wasn't going to be a one-off okay i wasn't going to be able to go home and say listen i got the chip i've quit let's keep going and uh so i knew i needed to come back tomorrow and and i i just couldn't come back So I went home and I got in my bed and I pulled that sheet over my head and I didn't move. 
until dinner time. I got up, I ate a little bit, and I went back to bed. And I just stayed there until the next day when I got up and took a shower and I could go back to that club. And it was 24 hours since I had put anything in my body to make me feel differently than I did. Wow. Now, I was only there to quit smoking pot. She didn't care about the drinking. That was legal. Mm -hmm. She just didn't want me to use illegal drugs around her daughter. And so I quit. Did you, meet your, did you meet your friend there again the next day, or did you roll solo? You know, I don't remember. You just ended up back there. Did you drive yourself back up there for the second meeting? Oh, I did, for sure. And, uh, and I drove myself to that first meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't used that day. So, you know, when I got up and went to that new meeting, I had, so far, I had not put anything in my body to make me feel differently. Mm -hmm. And so I'd gone a full 24 hours for sure, and, and I was very proud of that. And I didn't know... You know, when you talk about higher powers, um, it was the accountability of the people in the room. I mean, I wanted you to like me, and I knew you wouldn't like me as much if I came back the next day and say, you know, I wasn't doing what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And um, it was kind of like the opposite of when I first saw the drugs and alcohol. You know, you're not going to like me if I'm not doing what you're doing. And this was the opposite. And that's a real theme of my sobriety is Alcoholics Anonymous is just the opposite of everything you ever thought, you know? And the book talks about some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. And my old ideas, like many people, I think Alcoholics Anonymous, they're, you know, brown bag, under the bridge, homeless, dirty. Um, and that's what an alcoholic looks like, which is why I think kind of back to the question about my father that's why I didn't really recognize that. It wasn't like it looked on TV with the people joking and being funny about it. It wasn't like Otis letting himself out of jail, you know. And it wasn't, and it, it was always ugly, but it wasn't always, you know, aesthetically displeasing, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, I went back the next day and I kept coming back. And I did that for long enough to get her off my back. And she did, and we got married and had the baby, and and she moved back to Dallas. And by that time, you know, I had gone six or seven months, and without drinking too, yeah, everything, yeah, yeah, everything. You wanted to follow the rules. Well, I knew. Here's my truth. Yeah, if I drink a little bit, yeah, I'm gonna not be able to control it. Okay, and then if I don't control it. I'm going to get drunk and then I'm going to throw up all night long. And the next day I'm going to need pot to calm my stomach down so I can be, so I can start to eat again. Okay. So you're aware of that cycle. And like, if wow. I don't, then I'm going to go call somebody that pedals in something else. that's going to keep me up all night long so I can continue drinking and not appear drunk. Mm -hmm. And so the only way for me to keep from doing drugs is not to drink. Right. And I knew that was my truth. And okay. so over the next seven years, anybody that knew me would say, Hey, Tad went to AA and he got fixed. He doesn't drink or use drugs anymore. But I, but I wasn't going to meetings. I never got a sponsor. I never worked any steps. I kind of figured the steps were for people who couldn't quit. And I had quit. I mean, aren't, aren't we there to stop drinking and using drugs? I mean, that's what I thought we were there for. You know, I have since learned that while this program has everything to not, about not drinking and using drugs, this program has nothing to do with not drinking and using drugs. Right. Wow. All right, I want to take a quick break here to let everyone know that our website, SoberShares.com, is up and running. Our website is going to be our home base for the SoberShares community. I'm so excited to see 
for you to see all the cool features that have been baked into the website. You can listen to all of our episodes, join our email list, make a financial donation to us by clicking the PayPal link at the, or the donate button at the top of the website. This website has been optimized to look great and perform well on mobile as well as desktop computers. You can see all of our show reviews that have been collected from across the internet. You can also send me an email directly at mike at sobershares.com or you can use the contact us button on our website. You can also reach out to us on all of our social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sober Shares on those platforms and you'll see our little groups pop up. One of the coolest features is the leave us a voicemail button. It is on the bottom right hand corner of the website. Just click on the blue circle with a picture of a microphone on it. Then all you have to do is to record a voicemail for us. My goal is to play some of them back on future episodes. If you leave us a voicemail, you may hear yourself on a future episode of Sober Shares. That's enough information about the website SoberShares.com for now. I'm just so excited, and it is a brand new tool for you to use. It's first class all the way, and it works perfectly, so go check it out. So you said you came in on your 42nd birthday. Is that still your sobriety date? No, it is not. Um, I, as I mentioned, I came in, I quit drinking and using drugs, and I thought that's what we were here for, and... Um, and that was all good and fine. I made it through a bunch of, you know, traumatic things. I went through my divorce, um, from my ex-wife, my daughter's mother. And, um, I still knew that my truth was if I drank, I would use drugs and, and I didn't think I could ever stop if I started using drugs again. Um, but it was mainly pot and, um, and some cocaine. And, um, so I just knew to stay away from those things. And that's how I was able to stay away from those things. The just by willpower, I mean, just, just just by, you know, fear and willpower and, uh, until it wasn't enough Okay. because I had never worked any steps and I never gotten a sponsor and I didn't do anything like that. I did no work in the program. Mm -hmm. I just survived on the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. And so I had a lot of friends. I had some accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, but I started going out with a girl and she had been a friend of mine from middle school Mm -hmm. and she, we were, you know, she was one of the first girls I kissed and I really was, you know, enamored with her back in middle school. And she had moved away at the end before she started high school. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't seen her in a very long time. And I caught up with her in the devil's playground. That's Facebook for the rest of y'all. <laughs> I was going, what is and, that? Um, and I, you know, once I found out she was on Facebook and that somebody had seen her, I couldn't wait to see what she looked like and who she was today. And she was you know we were both all grown up and she had never been married and she didn't have any kids and she was single and and uh so i couldn't wait to get together with her and we started going out and we were just fast friends again kind of picked up where we left off except now we're all grown up so we can do grown-up stuff and and it was a whole lot of fun and but something a little off come back she always had a good excuse i was out of town on business i was busy i went to a friend's ranch and there was no cell phone coverage those kind of things and after about nine months of going out with her we uh one night at dinner i sat down with her and i said what's going on you know i knew she had been kind of a wild child i was like is there another guy is there another girl i mean what is going on here because you're something's not right and she told me she had been using meth every day for 20 years. Wow. And, you know, what's true is I had done a lot of drugs in my day, mm-hmm. and I've never really been exposed to that. 
I here's what I knew about it. Some of us had old ideas. I knew that it was illegal. I knew that it was a felony in Texas for sure, uh -huh. any amount. And and I knew my truth that I was an addict and I couldn't be around all that. And I told her. I went home and wrote a letter full of scripture and I told her that I wasn't going to risk my daughter. I wasn't going to risk my freedom. I wasn't going to risk my sobriety, my job, my home, my stability, mostly my freedom. Um to be around with somebody doing something like that. And she said she wanted to stop, that she had wanted to stop for a long time. Like you wrote her a real letter with a real piece of paper and a pencil? Oh, yeah. And you mailed it to her? No, I, I read it to her. I printed it in my computer. I still have it today. and uh -huh. reminds me of where my head was. And you called her and said, I have something I want to read you? In February of 2010. You're like, yeah. I have a prepared statement. I yeah, want to read. exactly. <laughs> and she was, not, she was not interested in that prepared statement. <laughs> and uh, But what she did say was she wanted to stop. And of course, um, you know, I jokingly say, being Captain save -ho, I thought I could rescue her. And um, she, uh, you know, I'd been to AA. Yeah. I had stopped. Yeah. I mean, I know how to do that. How long had it been since you had drank or done drugs at that point? Um, almost six and a half years. That's amazing. And so, um, you know, she would say things like, why don't you ever drink with me? And I would make light of it and say, you know, I was given a lifetime supply of alcohol and I've already used mine up. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, we, um, she said she wanted to stop and I said, okay, well, I can help you with that. And, you know, another thing I've learned in 18 years is, you know, if you hang around with people using drugs and drinking, you're going to eventually use drugs and drink. You know, the joke is if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Yeah. Isn't so that, isn't that what a lot of times you hear talking in the program when they come in, they say, you only got to change one thing. That's everything. And then in treatment, they tell you, you have to play your change, your play pins and your play mates. Correct. Yeah. They tell you that in treatment. And so when I, um, and I called treatment chemical country club and I really not to get, never got to go to chemical country club. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had to start with AA mm -hmm. and, uh, so anyway, I kept hanging around with her and, and she would, um, use, you know, away from me, like off in the bedroom while she's getting ready. And, do, do, and how do you do, I don't know. How, do you smoke it? Do she was, she was, it? she was smoking it, smoking it. You can, what are the you ways could, you can do it? You could eat it. You can shoot it. You can snort it. You can do almost anything. And so you said it. she was smoking it. She was smoking it. And it like stinked real bad. It no, smoking. it didn't have, as far as I remember, it didn't have any smell. Really? It's been a few years, but, and then she would look, would she look totally different? No, she would come not at out? all. And you know, they say the thing about meth is, what I had always heard uh -huh. is they would be, you know, extraordinarily skinny. Uh -huh. They would have lost all their teeth. Yep. You know, they would look horrible. Yep. Well, she was overweight. She had a beautiful <laughs> smile. She was the boss at her job. Oh, no. She didn't look like it had affected her at all. They say it makes you clean a lot. Does she have a clean apartment or house? She had pretty clean. Yeah, she was pretty clean. <laughs> and um, so, but she had done it for so long, 20 for 20 years, years yeah, that yeah. she was kind of through all those symptoms, okay. you know, and, um, so she would hide and not do it around me. And, okay. and finally I was like, you know, first I'm a drug addict. Uh -huh. And so, it, you know, I was like, you don't have to hide back there. You can do that in front of me. Oh She's like, God. are you sure? And, oh my God. and uh, you know, it's a fascinating process. If you've never watched it, never and, seen it, maybe on TV and looked and looked real appealing to me. And it's cause you're a drug addict and it's cause I'm a drug addict. <laughs> and uh, so one thing led to another, I held off for about four months. And one night we were going out and 
I was feeling particularly anxious. Right. You know, we talk about being restless, irritable, and discontent in right. our disease. And, of course, I didn't want her to go away. I didn't want her to abandon me. Right. I didn't want her to quit hanging out with me because I wasn't doing what she was doing or what her friends were doing. God, that just plays over and over again in your life. I knew it wouldn't. I wouldn't be included in their fun if they were all going to do something, and that was going to be part of it. That's the same thing you told yourself when you were a little kid in that backyard, backyard house with that guy. And, and then the same thing you told yourself when you were in college. Yeah. And the same thing you told yourself when you got back from college with those guys. And, you know, another friends. thing I've learned since coming back in when you talk about changing everything is if nothing changes, nothing changes. So what do you mean by that? I mean that if you don't change your playpens and your playmates, mm -hmm. you're not going to keep using drugs and drinking with them. Okay. Eventually. Some of, some of our listeners probably needed to hear that. Yeah. And they might already you, know it too, though. Um, you know, really, and it's kind of been the reoccurring theme in this 10th year now of my sobriety. And that is um, when they talk about, you only have to change one and that's everything. And that's everything. Mm -hmm. One thing. Mm -hmm. Um, the everything I have to change is all of my old ideas. And we'll get back into that in a minute. But it takes a long time to do that, though. Yeah, it does. You got to give yourself the gift of time because it takes a long time to untangle. Well, it, it takes a long time to even recognize what <laughs> an old idea is. Thank you. So I, uh, so I started hanging around with her. And, you know, four months later, one night, I'm feeling particularly anxious. And it was, give me that thing. Let me show you how it's done. Oh, my God. And so for seven months and seven days, I used that drug and really right away within a couple of weeks, she looked at me one night and she said, you used to be my hero. And that was very disheartening. And what she meant by that was I was a great dad and I had a great job and I lived in the right part of town and I drove the right car and I had the right bank numbers and all that kind of stuff. And now I'm just another drug addict trying to chase her down to get loaded. And I'm sure she had plenty of people in her life like that. And so, you know, later on, as we were drifting apart, I had a great idea. But alcoholics have great ideas. We're thinkers. And the great idea was if I buy a bunch of that stuff and keep it around, she'll come by more often. And so now I'm at home by myself most of the time. My daughter was with me half the time. Mm -hmm. But I'm by myself at home with a big old bag of drugs mm -hmm. and restless, irritable, and discontent and mm -hmm. lonely. Mm -hmm. And um, usually hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And uh, those are what we call HALT, the acronym HALT, which I think I've heard you talk about in, in other podcasts, which is try not to get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired or you're going to seek relief from those feelings. And so the problem with that particular drug is it is an amphetamine. And so it keeps you up. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe it was necessarily drug itself that really brought my downfall. It was the sleep deprivation. And I figured in November of 2010, I slept about 30 hours that month. And in December, I was psychotic and paranoid and um, one night so much so that I thought the police were going to kick down my door and catch me with the drug. And I was unwilling to go to prison. And so I flushed it all down the toilet that day. And that is my current sobriety date, which is December 7th, 2010. Wow. And the next night, my Pearl daughter... Harbor. That's Pearl Harbor Day. That's Pearl Harbor Day that will live in infamy. Yeah, December the 7th. And the next night, my daughter was dropped off, and um, I heard my imaginary friends 
that my imaginary window friends tell me that they were that I knew too, way too much about this international drug cartel mm-hmm. that was now out to try to kill me, yeah. and they were going to wait till I went to sleep and they were going to do a sin. About how old was your daughter when she got dropped off? She was day? she was six. Wow! And so that night I refused to um, allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And as a good father, I thought I was doing the good father thing. I locked my doors, I loaded my guns, and I called the Island Park Police. Oh no. So the Highland Park police do not take very kindly to these kind of phone calls. And once they searched the neighborhood and didn't find an international drug cartel trying to kill me, they let us go to sleep. But the next morning, they are also very bored. And the next morning, a detective from the police department reviewed the night's police logs from the day before and saw this guy who was claiming this international drug cartel was trying to kill him and had a little five-year, six-year-old daughter with him and thought he better go check that out. A little follow-up. Yeah. So, so one, he knocks on your door. One thing knocked on the door at about 10 o'clock the next morning. One yeah. thing led to two patrol officers behind him with their hands on the guns. Oh, no. And um, I don't like this. We had a conversation and they called my ex-wife who came and picked up my daughter. That was a good move on their part. And I agreed that if somebody was trying to kill us, that it would be a good idea to get her out of the situation. You said that. And he said that. And I agreed. Okay. And um, <laughs> <Were you> so... <laughs> And what's crazy about that is, you know, we talk about in in the rooms and all the rooms, really, about honesty, open-minded, and willing. You know, if you will tell somebody that you can't wait for them to leave so you can go get loaded, that it doesn't matter what they say, you know, all that kind of stuff, they can help you. If you say, I'm good, you know, I'm not going to do that, I'll see you at the meeting tonight, yada, 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 and you're just waiting for them to leave so you can get loaded, Nobody can help you. So you have to be honest. That's the first, you know, prerequisite to making this thing work. So she left with my daughter and I sat down on my couch with that police officer. And really? I think you let him in. I mean, you had crank upstairs, right? No, 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 no. I'd flushed it all down oh, the toilet the night Jesus. before. Okay. Yeah. I was making sure you were holding. And so I, uh, and which is what he brought up. And so um, after they left, I sat down with him on my couch and I said, I think I'm having a reaction to this drug I was taking. And he said, what drug was that? Well, he, he, yeah, I, I think I've been having a reaction to this drug I was taking. I've been taking methamphetamine. And he said, uh, it's not illegal to have done it. It's not illegal to have had it. It's only illegal to be on it or to be in possession of it. And did he ask you, do you have, and I said, I flushed it all down the toilet two days ago. And he said, Okay, good. Well, then there will be no charges of any kind. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think you should get medically checked out. Did he um, ask if you mind if he searched the apartment? No, he didn't ask. What do you say about your guns? Did uh, you know about your guns? Before we left that day, so I'll get there. So we're, we're uh, he said, I think you should get medically checked out. And I said, see. well, my father's a doctor. My sister's a doctor. You know, I'll make an appointment. He was like, no, I think you should do that today. <laughs> And um, he said, there's a place in Dallas that's real familiar with how to deal with this. It's called Green Oaks. Oh, no. And they have a four-hour evaluation process. You will come in. You will answer a few questions. You will talk to some doctors. They will medically check you out. And if you're fine, you'll be home by dinner. Oh, it makes it sound nice. I do believe he lied. And um, (laughs) so I went up. So I I said, well, I have a a lease to get out, and I have a few things to do, and I got to go get gas. And 
he said, okay, well, you know, I'll hang out. We oh, can go out there together. No. And so he, he was plain clothes. He waited for a couple hours. This was a while detective? I took a, yeah, while I took a shower and got dressed and sent a vax to lease off. And, you know. Oh, he just sat on your couch? He just hung out with me. Wow. And um, then he followed me around the corner to the gas station and I got gas and and then we drove up to Green Oaks and I've I parked in the parking never lot. Heard this story. I was scared and and he said it'll be okay. And once they got me behind the locked door, you know, he left. And yeah. have you ever and, seen him or talked to him again? Oh, I talk to him every year. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and so it, that's a fun part of the story. So we um so I went to Green Oaks and they checked me out, and then one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. And um he and then it became obvious I wasn't going home that night. And I was very distressed about that. And But nonetheless, I stayed the evening. And the next morning, people started seeing the doctors all day long. And by the end of the night, I was released mm-hmm. and went home. And the next morning was a Saturday morning. My doc, My ex-wife has been texting with me and saying she's coming to drop off my daughter. Mm-hmm. which was a lie and the doorbell rang about 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning and there was a man standing there and he said, um, here, consider yourself served. Mm-hmm. And she, he had a restraining order and a protection order and a petition to change our divorce to give her full custody. Uh-huh. And I went upstairs and I sat on my bed and I looked at that paperwork. I read through it and there was the green Oaks report and there was the Highland park police report. And there was this huge legal document and I cried and I looked up and I said, God, what have I done? Please help me. And I didn't know what to do. And so I called my friend, Will. I'd called him. It was seven years to the day that I had first walked in the door. It was December the 11th, 2010. Uh-huh. And I said, I explained to him what I did. And he said, um, why don't you meet me up at the group? So I showed up at the group and he said, this time you need to get a sponsor and you need to work these steps. Okay, that leads right into my next question. It says, tell me about your AA sponsor and how did you get one and how has he helped you? So my friend had said that he'd heard, you know, a bunch of people's stories. He had been in the program 13 years and he said there was a guy that was coming during the week and that he would introduce me to him, that he had some uh, similar story and uh, that he would make a good sponsor. Mm-hmm. So I kept, I came back on Sunday and I came back on Monday and it was a Monday noon meeting. And he usually goes to the meetings on Mondays and Fridays at noon. And he, my friend pointed him out and I went up to this man and I was crying and I told him they had taken my daughter away and I needed his help. And he asked me if I was willing to go to any lengths to stay sober. And I was a liar. So I said, yes. And I didn't know what he was even talking about, but I thought if he could help me get my daughter you know, back that I would say anything and do anything. And, you know, and, and kind of leads me into a little bit of the literature. So he, he said, okay, well, I want you to do these five things. I went, do you have a 12 and 12? I said, I have one. I've had it for seven years. I've never opened it, but I have it. And he said, I want you to read the first chapter in the 12 and 12 every day for 30 days. Do you have a big book? I said, I do. He said, I don't care if you start at the beginning of the blank pages, read, a sentence, a paragraph, a page, a chapter. I don't care. Read some of that book every day. He said, I want you to go to the meetings on Mondays and Fridays at noon so I can put an eyeball on you. I want you to go to a meeting every day. You found time to drink and drug every day. You can find time to come to a meeting every day. And the last thing, I want you to get down on your knees 
every day and ask the God of your misunderstanding to keep you from putting anything in your body to make you feel differently than you do. And I went home from that meeting that day and I thought, you know, how is that going to help? First of all, I had a lot of old ideas. You know, my idea was this isn't God's job to do this. You know, he gave us the top 10 list of things not to do. Mm-hmm. At the end of our lives, he would judge how well we performed that list. Mm-hmm. If we believed the right way, it wouldn't matter anyway, because he was going to forgive us, and we would be with him for all of eternity. He knew every hair on my head a thousand years before I was born. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. I mean, that's what I knew about God, you know? And I was ordained. <laughs> and so I knew some stuff about God. Mm-hmm. And... um so I just didn't think it was his job to do that. Also, you know, how's she going to know I'm reading these books? How's she going to know I'm going to these meetings? What difference is that going to make? And so I appreciated that direction. Now, you know, I equate that to the difference between submission and surrender. And when I came into the program, I submitted to your program. I will hold my hand up and say I'm an alcoholic. I will come to your meetings. I will work your steps. I will do everything you tell me to do. You know, I will say I'm an alcoholic. No problem. I'm a liar. No sweat off my brow. Um, but I didn't understand any of that. And, um, you know, the there's an Al-Anon book, and uh, I am in both programs. And, you know, on May 14th and one day at a time in Al-Anon, it talks about the difference between submission and surrender. And actually, what it says, so I don't butcher it, is it says that um, a longtime friend of AA, Dr. Harry Tybutt, clarified brilliantly the difference between submission and surrender idea, which is implied in step one of the 12 steps. In submission, he said, there's an, an individual accepts reality consciously, but not unconsciously. He accepts as a practical fact that he cannot at the moment conquer reality but lurking in his unconscious, the feeling there'll come a day. There's no real acceptance. The struggle is still going on. With this temporary yielding, tension continues. But when the ability to accept functions on the unconscious level as surrender, there is no residual battle. There is relaxation and freedom from strain and conflict. So I submitted to the program, I will do what you tell me to do, but I didn't even know what surrender looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Total surrender is, is a elusive and tricky thing and it's a gift. It doesn't feel like it when it's being given to you, but it is an elusive and tricky thing to get there. And I, I reached total surrender on October the 9th of the year 2000 in Carlsbad, California at the end of a little street called Acacia down by the railroad tracks. And around 9.45 PM that evening, I uh, achieved total surrender in the way that I did that was I was administered a custom made um, ass whipping by God <laughs> <laughs> that was well, that was applied to me, and I got to the point where I was like, uh, you know, exa- I can tell you exactly what happened. It's, it's 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 down to three words. I got to the point at nine forty five p.m. on that night. I said, God help me. That's exactly what happened. I think I've heard uh, you know hundreds of circuit speakers and testimonies and and really everybody's just like when i was in bed that day and i looked up and i said what have i done god please help me because i had put myself in a pickle you know in a real bad position now 
you know, he told me to read that first chapter on the 12 and 12 every day for 30 days. And I can tell you because I've now memorized it, that it starts who cares to admit complete defeat. Mm -hmm. Practically no one, of course. Yeah. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. And, you know, that's just my experience. You know, I didn't want to say I was powerless over anything. I didn't even understand what that meant. But when I worked these steps um, with a sponsor, a couple of, couple of weeks later, some guys took me to lunch. And because that's what we do, we'll surround you with love. And they took me to lunch, and I was still very distraught about not having my daughter. And, and um, they said, you know, if you'll do what he tells you to do, a year from now, this will be behind you. And I thought, a year from now? How dare you? Are you kidding? (laughs) There's a father-daughter camp out for Valentine's Day that if I don't get to take my daughter to, you know, heads are going to roll. And, um, but I didn't get to take her to that Valentine's camp out. Um, So they, uh, so yeah, that was, that was where I got introduced to the steps and to a sponsor. Yeah, it sounds like you made two totally different, radically different approaches to Alcoholics Anonymous. The first one was a little seven-year run, and that second one is, it sounds like you had much more gumption the second time and motivation to get your daughter back and get your life straightened out. Um, can you give me one life highlight from your time sober that would have never happened if you were still drinking? Well, there's so many things. Um, you know, I think the the... One of the things that happened during that first year, I was working step seven and, um, you know, humbly asking God to remove my shortcomings. And um, my niece had gotten, I have a, a, a niece that's about my daughter's age, and she'd gotten really upset at me. And um, I, I really, uh, actually, you know what, I'm going to back up because that's, that's not the chronological in the seventh month, I was sitting in the room because, again, I've just submitted to your program. And, and I was reading through the 12 and 12, and one of the lines that it talks about in step three was, to those of us who hitherto knew only excitement, anxiety, or depression, and I may have mixed up the order that those actually come in, but to those of us who hitherto knew only excitement, anxiety, or depression, in other words, to all of us, this newfound peace was a priceless, a priceless gift. And I looked around the room, and I thought, excitement, anxiety, depression. I was either happy about it, I was sad about it, or I was worried about it. I didn't know there were any other emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the way I live my life. And I looked around the room, and I thought, oh, my God, all these people feel the same way I do. In other words, to all of us. And I thought, I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) I'm just like these people. I am an alcoholic. You know, Mm -hmm. it may look a little different, and maybe I didn't get up and shake in the morning and need a morning drink and those kind of things. But I'm I'm every bit as alcoholic as all these people. And and that's when, you know, it kind of really hit me that I was an alcoholic. You talked about traveling in three lanes there emotionally just a very narrow spectrum of the emotions of human feelings and emotions can you talk to us a little bit about the first time that you truly uh, experienced or understood uh, the two words I want to talk about are serenity and grace did you ever get to a point 
Can you tell us about a point when you got to when you felt serenity for the first time? And were you like, oh, what's that? Or did I did. You, what exactly. About, yeah, yeah, so I, I was talking, you know, I'd worked through a lot of the steps. I was talking to my sponsor and I said, maybe I'd worked through all the steps. It may have been my second year. And, and, um, and I called him up and we were just having a conversation. And I said, you know, I mean, I go to a lot of meetings. You know, I do a lot of service work. Um, I enjoy, I read the literature. I get up every morning and read and pray and read, read through, you know, a bunch of books. And and um, I try to help people. I sponsor some people. You know, it just seems a little humdrum, you know. I said, it just, you know, it's just, I mean, there's no real high highs and there are no real low lows. And he said, do you know what that is? And I said, no. And he said, that's serenity. That's peace. And I was like, huh, never had that before. <laughs> Right on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a strange feeling the first time you get it, and it's not chemically induced. Yeah. I used to confuse, uh, Pink Floyd has a song called Comfortably Numb, yeah. and I used to listen to that Pink Floyd song called Comfortably Numb, and I, before I got sober and before I had a spiritual experience and before I had a profound personality change, I would get real loaded up on alcohol and weed, and I would confuse numbness for serenity because I didn't know serenity. I'd heard the word. I probably knew how to spell it. I knew how to use it in a sentence, but I didn't have any real life experience with the word serenity. I knew how to get comfortably numb. And then I got sober and then I started to get some traction in Alcoholics Anonymous and I started to change and I started little by slow, let go of my old life, my old behaviors, my old thoughts and embrace new thoughts, new behaviors in a new way of life. And at some point, and I can't, I don't really feel like throwing out a date right now, like how long I was sober, this, that, and the other. But I do want to tell the listener, at some point, I started to get comfortable in my own skin without being drunk or high. And I noticed that. That was not lost on me. And I started to say things to myself like, hey, Mike, you've been going to a lot of meetings. You've been sponsoring a lot of guys. You've been doing a lot of service work. You've been praying a lot. And I'm starting to notice that I'm comfortable in my own skin all the time. Not all the time, but most of the time, which was new for me. I had nothing. The only thing I had close to that was comfortably numb. And so that's a little by slow how I started to experience the word uh, serenity. And then after I you know, went through a few years and started to get more and more and more comfortable in my own skin, I started to discover the definition and experience of a new word, which was called grace. Now, I knew how to say it. I knew how to spell it. I knew how to use it in a sentence, but I didn't have any experience with the word grace. And after several years sober, I was sitting in this church and this guy got up and he started to sing this song called Amazing Grace. Now I had heard that song before, but I had never heard that song before. And it was a solo guy by himself with a guitar acoustically singing Amazing Grace. And I'm listening to him and like all of a sudden, I start to feel this liquid roll down my face out of my eyes. And I'm listening to the words. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I started to really listen to the words of Amazing Grace. And it changed me. That He only sang that song for two and a half, three minutes max. But he really helped me come to terms and to understand the fact that I was sober by grace. And so I went home. After I cried, my wife was looking at me. She's like, wow, I guess she's really feeling this song, you know? And I go home and I look up the definition of the word grace and it says, starts talking about it's an unearned gift. It's an unearned gift. So after several years sober, I got some, some traction with serenity. And then I moved from that platform to another platform where I got to learn about grace. And that was, uh, 
that's just some of the good stuff that you can get by getting sober and staying sober and staying in the program and keep moving, keep it moving, you know, keep moving closer to God, keep moving further away from your old life and closer to your new life. So that was my experience with serenity and, and grace. Uh, I wanted to ask you if uh, the desire to drink or use has ever come back since you've been sober. And if so, what did you do about it? You know, um, it really hasn't. I, uh, I believe that, you know, my whole life I've moved towards pleasure and away from pain uh-huh. and most of my, you know, early life up until I turned, I got 48 and came back into the program this time. Um, I thought pleasure looked like hanging out with the gang, getting loaded, um, being included in their fun and merriment. Um, and I thought pain looked like being left alone, being abandoned, not being included in all those things. And so drugs and alcohol always look like pleasure and not doing drugs and alcohol always look like pain. Well, during my recovery, my, you know, whole attitude and outlook on life would changed and pain started looking like relapsing, doing drugs and alcohol putting myself back in that position of having my daughter taken away, being back in the position of being in front of courts that were saying things like methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, pleasure looked like staying sober. And so that I wouldn't have to worry about the red and blue lights behind me as I went through the intersection. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to worry about my daughter being taken away or being putting myself in a bad position legally um physically so you know all that changed and i mean i referenced it earlier which was it's the exact opposite of everything i thought well one of the ninth step promises is our whole attitude now like on life would change so what i thought was pain and pleasure switched why wow that's i've never anybody's put it put it down like that that was amazing i wanted to talk to you about a couple of big topics um and i think we'll talk about your daughter first it seems to me like and we can talk about your family as well but i'm really more interested in talking about your daughter right now it seems to me like you're drugging you're drinking and you're drugging put you in a position where you were in jeopardy um of losing you know visitation custody the ability to be a good parent to your to your daughter and through sobriety you've been able to repair yourself and then hence repairing yourself you and god and aa and everything you've since been able to be put in a position to be a father uh that is available and there for his daughter and has a completely different relationship with her than you would have if you would have continued to drink and drug and i feel like there's so many people out there that are listening that are in a position right now where they're caught up in quote unquote drama over uh, how it's going with their children and and what level they're parenting at because they're drinking and drugging. Can you You, speak to that a little bit? You know, I I, I mentioned it a minute ago in that, you know, some guys took me to lunch and they said, you know, if you'll do what he tells you to do a year from now, this will be behind you. And they were right. And what happened is before my first year, birthday for my sobriety birthday the court case had been dropped i had veteran 50 percent custody of my daughter um i had no child support i mean we were back for where we started mm-hmm. and you know today my daughter's 17 she lives with me full-time by choice um 
and you know we have an amazing life and it, you know i think there's a lot of fun parts of my story because i'm full of myself and but one of the things that guys regularly mention when i work with them at the jail or green oaks or just sponsor them is that that's what caught their ear is they have kids they are estranged from them they want a relationship with them they want to be in their lives and they don't know how to go from point A to point B. And so I certainly can't promise them that they'll get the benefits that I've gotten to enjoy. But, you know, I can definitely assure them that if they will do what we do, they will, you know, it'll work out better than if they don't. I agree. That's fantastic. And so we're, just talk a little bit more about your daughter. Where are you at with her today? What y'all's relationship look like today? So um, my daughter, I... Um, initially got her into horseback riding when she was about right after that incident, right after 2010. So she was about six, seven years old Mm -hmm. and um, started taking little lessons where they just led her around on a pony. And um, and it comes back into my story later on, because of course, you know, you ride horses, you get thrown off. And, um, but she got better at it and she seemed to have a real knack for it. And she just loved the animal and loved being around the horses and, and um you know it's a great recreational activity it's 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 good exercise it's almost all women or girls um they're usually good kids that are getting you know privileged kids and um they don't drink and they don't smoke and they're respectful to their parents and they don't really do boys much Mm -hmm. because they're just not around them because they do the barn thing all the time yeah and so i'm a barn dad yeah and what is that? I've never heard it's that. It's like that a mean? soccer mom, you know, I'm just a barn dad. And so I sit. Do you have around, to scoop the poop or no, not? I don't have to do any of that, but I sit around the barn and, and, uh, yeah. you know, we sit around the arenas and we watch girls ride horses okay. and I hang out with a bunch of mommies that are doing the same thing. Cause, um, I'm fortunate enough in my profession to be able to have some, that I can work wherever I am. And so I can step away and take a phone call and, and still be with her. So, um, my daughter grew up watching me do AA because when I came back to AA, I didn't just start going to meetings or start going to the club. I moved in that first year I was keeping court sheets signed for the court. So they know what a good little AA I was. Mm-hmm. So I know I went to 525 meetings in the first year. Congratulations. And that's a good reset mentally. Oh yeah. And so, I mean, what I didn't have anything else to do. You know, <laughs> and so when I wasn't with her, I was there. And, and tell, talk to the people. It, it was fun, right? It wasn't pain. So the it wasn't first killing thing, you to no, go. That's exactly the opposite of everything I thought. It's fun. We, I got into the meeting, and Thank some you. of the first days, people were saying the funniest stuff. Laughter, and it was so funny. It was like a comedy routine. Yeah, you know, an alcoholic with money is like a monkey with a machine gun and just all <laughs> this really funny stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it's not terrible. And so I had this little journal that somebody in my Bible study had given me for Christmas, a little blank, you know, pages, yeah, yeah. just a little blank paper book and yeah. to, for you to write notes in. And, and I thought, you know, somebody ought to be writing this stuff down. 
Yeah. And now I have like 175 pages typed. I have the same thing in my, uh, we should compare notes in my yeah. iPhone. In my iPhone, I've got a note app. And every time somebody says something yeah. gnarly, I, I pick it. up my phone. I'm like, bang, 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 bang. Absolutely. So, and so I've been doing that for years, for 10 years. You know? Me too. So to the listener, you know, please come join us. If it was horrible, I'd be like, you know, it's kind of horrible, but just come anyway. No, I'm not going to say that. I promise you as the listener, I will no. always be honest with you. And I will always tell you the truth. And here's the honest truth. It's a lot of fun for me. It's a lot of fun for Tad, and we have a good time there. Now, here's the deal. If you're super sad and super weepy and all that, you can still come. It's all good. You can cry in the meetings. Every single meeting I've ever been to, they've got at least anywhere between two and six boxes of Kleenex strategically <laughs> moved all around the club. So people will just hand you a box of Kleenex if you start crying and you've only got four or five days. It doesn't matter where you are emotionally, but you know we're mostly there to be in the solution, to have a good time. If you're real messed up and damaged and hurt, guess what? Come there and we will love you until you can love yourself. And I don't know how long that's going to take. It might take weeks, months, years. I don't know. But just come in and let us love you until you can love yourself. Let me ask you a question. Could your daughter be doing what she's doing now and performing at the level if she's performing now if you were still a drunk dad? No way. First, it's outrageously expensive. And, and you so, wouldn't be able to go to work and perform? Well, not only that is I would be spending all my extra money on drinking and drugging and partying and, you know, so without you, her so you wouldn't be able to facilitate no, the opportunities absolutely for not her. plus i mean we're leaving tomorrow for yeah. two weeks in kentucky okay um i will be walking around getting exercise and running up to the store to grab stuff they need and running out to go get stuff to eat for the everybody and doing just, barn dad stuff yeah i'm just going to i'm an errand boy yeah and yeah. um and so, and I'll take my little dog and we'll go on little five and six mile walks every day. And, yeah. and we're just going to be hanging out and I couldn't do that and, and wouldn't be present for that. Yeah. You know, one of the concerns that my ex-wife had when, before we were married was, you know, when we would travel, we would fly or whatever, even drive in the car to Shreveport and back. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't be, you know, she was intolerant of the fact that I would be in possession of some kind of illegal drug. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was unacceptable to be around the kids with illegal drugs. Mm -hmm. And I would plan trips. We would plan life mm -hmm. around me being able to use. Mm. I would FedEx stuff across the country to the hotels we were going to go to so really? that we wouldn't have to fly with it. And oh, no. then just deny everything if I got in trouble, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just stuff like that. <laughs> They're like, this package is addressed to you with your handwriting. Like, I yeah. don't know nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I know nothing. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk to you real quick about service work. And so you are one of the biggest service work people I know. And I want to, before we start getting into that and talking about the whole area of your life, which is awesome. I don't think everybody's capable of doing what you do and working at your level. Now, the reason I want to say that is because there's several different ways that you can get involved in service work and several different lanes you can travel in. Uh, Tad travels in the high speed, autobahn of 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 aa service work he is down to to be of service and and be there and achieve and, and do things in a lot of different areas so um, we're going to talk a little bit about that and and how he got started with that and what it means to his program so who introduced you to service work and how'd you get rolling so when i got to the end of working my 12th step which is having had a spiritual awakening which i believe meets for me a new way of looking at life, whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Mm -hmm. It in the book it talks about a you know a, a, a 
your the mentality mm-hmm. that will keep you sober, mm-hmm. you know? So when I got to the 12 step, having to have spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. And my sponsor said, you need to get a regular service commitment. And I was like, okay, what do you think I should do? And he said, no, you need to figure it out on your own. You need to use your experience, strength, and hope. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you've heard my story. You've heard my fifth step. You know everything about me. What do you think I should do? Come on, you know, Mm -hmm. give me a hint. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, why don't you go home and pray about it? So I went home that night. Every morning I get up a couple hours early and I spend an extraordinary amount of time in this literature and and in in meditation. And and that morning, that next morning, I heard green oaks. And I was like, no, 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 no. Let's come up with something else. Okay. Choice door number two. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, you got to go to Green Oaks. And that was the hospital that you that were taken to by the That was the emergency psychiatric Park. facility that I went to. The emergency first psychiatric, very, but they're also drug and alcohol treatment, right? Yeah, I mean, it's all the same bucket. But <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they don't always tell you see, that when you go. It's, it's hard to see the cream rising to the top. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to, I never want to see that place again. You know, that place scared me to death. I thought it was the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to me. Mm-hmm. I was in there locked in there. She was circling the wagons, calling lawyers, calling mm-hmm. police departments. You know, I never wanted to see that place again. Did they give you the paper shoes, the paper pants and the paper shirt? You know, I didn't know I was in my clothes. Now I didn't have my, uh, belt. certainly shoelaces and belt. Yeah. They take your shoelaces and belt. A lot of times um, when you're there for a while, they give you paper shoes. I think everything else. Yeah. And they take a lot. They, they put it all in a bucket and zip tie it and yeah. wish it goodbye. Yeah. Um, they tell you to write down a few phone numbers that you'll need and they have free phones on the wall so you can call people, but, yeah. um, you don't have your cell phone and stuff. Right. So, uh, they don't want you taking pictures of the other people. It's a hippie thing, you know? Okay. So, um, so I, I went back to, you know, him and I said, well, what came up for me was green oaks. He thinks, I, I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think it's a horrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I got in touch with the green oaks and we pick out a night and I set up a little team of people that come with me on Thursday nights and we go to green oaks and that was 2012. And we still, I was there last night. Wow. And, um, so we've been doing it for nine years yep. and, um, you know, I started taking meetings to green oaks and, okay. you know, it's kind of like my daughter doing the horseback riding thing. First time she ever got thrown off a horse, mm-hmm. she landed in the dirt and she cried for a little while and I brushed her off and I said, now, you know what has to happen? And she said, no, what? And I said, you have to get back on. And she was like, no. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the way it works. If you don't get back on, you'll never get back on. And right. so she got back on that horse and rode it for a couple more minutes. And now she's, you know, one of the top riders in the country. And, and, um, I think she was ranked seventh in the country this year. Can you tell the people what kind of horse riding she does? She does English hunter jumper stuff. Well, and, they don't um, know what that means. So she gets on a horse and she rides around an arena and she jumps over jumps uh-huh. and the hunter stuff, you do it for style and form. Okay. And the jumper stuff, you do it for speed and accuracy, mostly mm-hmm. for speed. Mm-hmm. And so she really likes the jumper stuff because it's more exciting. We just bought a brand new jumper horse. Mm-hmm. And if you would have told me even a year ago that mm-hmm. I would buy her a horse that costs that much money, I would have told you that I would love to do that, but yeah. that could never happen. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I found a way. And so, um, so I thought, you know, it's kind of like get back on that horse. I got to get back on that horse. And I started going to Green Oaks. And, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years later, I was on the way home from Green Oaks. It was Christmas time. I was driving down Central back to, you know, my condo. And 
And I thought, you know what's crazy? Green Oaks was the best thing that ever happened to you. And I thought, how is that possible? I grew up, you know, in Highland Park. I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I've been all over the country. I've gotten to live with all these, you know, things. I've made movies. I've done all this stuff, you know. And how could that nasty-ass emergency psychiatric facility be the best thing that's ever happened to you? And it's really not that bad if you have to go. But um, I thought it was at the time. So um, I was like, you know, that led you into a relationship with a God you never knew. It was the bottom you had to hit in sobriety. They say we say that you have to hit bottom before you'll really try this program. Mm-hmm. And but everybody gets to hit a different bottom. And in the book, there's a story in the back of the book um, called "Window of Opportunity." Yeah, and it says that when the thing you lost or the thing you're about to lose is more important to you than alcohol, that's your bottom. And I was about to lose my daughter, and that was way more important to me than than alcohol or drugs. Um, her, her mom has kind of a, a, you know, her, her style of parenting is not the same as mine. Mm -hmm. It's a lot tougher and a lot stricter over there. It's the discipline looks a lot different and, um, and it's just not pleasant in my opinion. And I didn't want my daughter to have to grow up in a house like that. I grew up without a dad. I didn't want to abandon her to that situation Mm -hmm. and have her fight through all that. Mm. and I saw what it had done to her older sister, and it didn't work out well for her, and I just wasn't willing for that to happen. So that was the bottom I had to hit mm-hmm. to change my life. Okay, you mentioned your dog earlier. Can you tell us your dog's name so we can give a special shout-out to your dog? <laughs> well, she um, when my daughter moved in with me full-time during COVID, uh, she brought a big bloodhound with her. Oh my named, god! Named Bailey. Bailey is 110 pounds. Oh, really? And she is beautiful as they come. Do they howl? She is, oh my gosh! <laughs> if she sees another dog, it is. She does not have an inside voice. Oh my and god. then I have a little terrier mix uh-huh. named RD. It stands for Rescue Dog. <laughs> and he um, he came to us at a horse show uh, about. 10 years ago, about uh-huh. eight years ago. Yeah. And um, he was there with no collar and he was wandering around in the rain and everybody was leaving on a Sunday and we couldn't just leave him there. And so he jumped up into the truck and uh-huh. he's been with us ever since. That is so cool. Can you talk to us a little bit about why going to meetings is important? So, you know, it's important on a couple of different levels. First of all, hearing that it's fun. Yeah, I agree. You know, the laughter, the camaraderie. We go out to eat afterwards. We call it the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. You know, people come in and say, oh, I thought this place was a cult. I was like, you know, well, here's the good news. The good news is it's not a cult. In Mm -hmm. a cult, they do what they're told, and here we don't. Mm -hmm. And second, uh, so the bad news is we're your new best friends. (laughs) And so we go to eat. We go bowling. We go to movies. We we go to conventions. We go to, Mm -hmm. you know, do things together. We record podcasts with each other. We record podcasts. (laughs) We go, we have this, you know, group-wide meeting that Mm -hmm. all the meetings get together and have a big monthly meeting called Mm -hmm. Citywide. And and there's four or 500 people there and everybody – chips in and brings food there's about like dinner i mean it's just fun nice nice so i noticed so so i go to meetings yeah go ahead and um and at the meetings you know one of our biggest things is that we be my biggest thing is that i be a maximum service to god and my fellows Mm -hmm. and i find my fellows at the meetings Mm -hmm. and at green oaks and at the jail and at conventions and different places but um 
but I, I have to expose myself to those people. Uh-huh. And generally we say, you know, look for something that has, look for somebody that you want to sponsor or work with that has something you want uh-huh. or that has something they want and, you know, that's happy with their lives. And so, you know, meetings exposes us to those people, the newcomers that uh-huh. are looking for a solution, a way out of what they're trapped in. That also gives us um, certainly the social aspect. Um, it keeps us informed about what's going on in the recovery community. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly like you mentioned before, it's just fun. Totally. Okay. i got a question the, the, the viewers can't see what's going on, but I'm looking at you and you've got a large stack of literature in front of you. Is there any, you pulled that out already a couple times. Is there anything, is there anything else that you want to point out to us in your books or your literature, anything else you want to highlight for us? So in my, um, in the books, in the literature, as I'm going through these things, you know, I do have, you know, a little bit of a, a church background kind of thing. And um, some of my books are religious and referenced Bible scriptures and things like that. And I know that originally our, our program was founded by the Oxford Group, which is a little more heavily religious than Alcoholics Anonymous. But there are a lot of um, cross-referencing you know, in our book, it talks about, you know, once you've cracked the door ever so slightly open. And so, um, you know, as I'm reading my other literature in the mornings and I see passages that say things like knock and the door will be open. Um, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's, that really closely relates to what I'm reading in the step three, you know, trust the Lord and lead not on your own understanding you know, that relates to me in certain parts of the book. So I will make little notes in the margins of my books. It, you know, makes it personal to me. Um, it reminds me daily when I've read this book a thousand times and I look at those passages. I wrote something in the back of my 12 and 12 one day, and I can't even tell you when I wrote it, but years ago. And it says, our literature in the 12 steps are based on biblical principles, principles that vaguely resemble the principles I grew up with at church but did not understand. Our founders realized these biblical principles had been distorted, confused, and disguised to mask selfish and ungodly motives of some of the organized religionists. As when Martin Luther exposed the corruption of the Catholic rulers of the 16th century, our literature enlightened me into a deeper understanding of godly principles— righteous living and a conscious contact with God that leads me into a in daily into a fuller, richer way of living. God led me to AA and AA led me to God. Wow. That's powerful. There's so much stuff within the two main pieces of literature of our group, uh, which are the 12 and 12, uh, which was written after the big book. And then of course the big book was the original manuscript and the, um, original program is, well, the only program that hasn't been changed is the written in the first 164 pages. And the reason I mentioned that is because even with long-term sobriety, I read through there all the time and I find new stuff. I just f- keep finding new and new stuff. That's new to me. Of course, it's been in there since 1935. You know, what's funny in regards to that, yeah. I was, uh, this on Friday mornings, I take a meeting into the Dallas County jail. And so we've been reading the big book with those guys. Mm-hmm. And this morning, um, right after the first 164 pages, the next story, the first story in the book is mm-hmm. the co-founder, Dr. Bob's nightmare is what it's called. Yeah. And I knew that Dr. Bob had had some exposure to, um, the Oxford group. Mm-hmm. 
and before he met Bill and before the Alcoholics Anonymous program was um, was founded. And this morning, um, we were reading in the book. We were finishing up the story, and and in his story, it talks about that he was exposed to this other program that was kind of religious and this and that and the other. And, um, and I, I didn't ever, I've read this book a thousand times and I never really realized he was making reference to the Oxford group until we read that with those people, the the inmates this morning. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, there it is. Changes every time I read it. Yeah. You're like, Ooh, when do they put that in there? That's amazing. All right. So we're, we're coming towards the end of the podcast and I want to ask you my favorite, favorite question. Can you tell me about your best day sober and what did that day look like? You know, one of my most impactful days sober, um, I started to mention a little while ago, my niece had gotten really upset at me and and I really, I mean, really had done nothing wrong. Um, I had taken her on every vacation she had ever had. I'd been very supportive. When I complained to my somebody, uh, somebody I trusted about what was going on with me that day, um, they just said, you're just the only safe person she has to come to to vent, you know. And so she said, you know, you should be honored that she chose you. Wow. And I didn't. I wasn't at the time. But... I had called another friend of mine when I first came into the program, like many of us, I assume, I had um, different doctor's prescriptions for anxiety-type medicines. And when I came in in December 7th of 2010, I locked those things in a drawer, and I would give my sponsor regular accountings that I still have this many of those pills and this many of these pills. I had two different prescriptions, one to sleep and one to kind of take the edge off, and that I hadn't taken any of that medication over seven years, the next seven years. Um, and when my niece went off on me, I called a friend of mine in the program and I said, you know, I, I was up last night and I was, con- I was angry and upset about what my niece had said. And I said, I almost took, you know, part of a sleeping pill to get back to bed. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, I, I have these prescriptions. They've been locked in a drawer for seven years. And, and, uh, and I thought about taking one of those, a part of one of those sleeping pills. And she said, they've been locked on the door for seven years and you haven't used them? And I said, yes. And she goes, well, I submit to you that if you've had those things for seven years, you don't need them. And you should probably look at getting rid of that stuff. And she goes, it's probably not even good anymore anyway. And, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but the next day she called me back and she said, guess what tomorrow is? And I said, I don't know, what's tomorrow? And she said, it's one of those DEA take back days where you can take your old drugs or whatever down to the police department and put them in the little box and they'll incinerate them, no questions asked. And, you know, and, and I thought, you know, in this program, I quit believing in coincidences a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so it was from 10, to, I called the police department, it was from 10 to 2 the next day, it was a Saturday, mm-hmm. like a good alcoholic, I waited till about 2.05 to leave to go down there, mm-hmm. I only live about a block from the police department, Yeah. and so, you know, my fear was that I would see somebody I knew, Yeah. and uh, of course I rolled up and there was the chief information officer who I'm friends with, uh-huh. and another lady from our program was standing there helping him run this little, this, you know, collection day, Yeah. 
And uh, they were boxing up. They were just getting ready to leave. And I dumped this baggie full of these pills, which were discolored at this point and mm-hmm. stuff from being sold. Yeah. And nobody thought anything about it. You know, yeah. I was thinking they were, they were, you know, thinking, why has he still got this stuff? Or what has he been doing with this? Or what is this? And mm-hmm. all those things, you know, in the program, one of the funny things that I heard right up front was quit worrying about what everybody's thinking about you, mm-hmm. but they're not. Yeah, they're not. They're thinking about themselves. <laughs> Correct. Isn't that amazing so, when you figure that out? So, you're like, Dang. so I was driving home that day and, you know, we talked about the difference between submission and surrender. Yep. And I was driving home two blocks, you know, one bar. But that day I thought, you know what? You have surrendered to this program today. Because from this point forward, if you want chemical comfort, you're going to have to go to a doctor, not probably not your sister, because she'll know. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to get a prescription. And then you're going to have to go fill the prescription. Then you're going to have to break your sobriety and take that drug. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to lie to everybody in your life. You're going to have to tell the boards you sit on for AA, you're going to have to tell the service commitments, you're going to, your home group, you're going to lie to everybody involved in your sobriety life about the fact that you're now using this, using chemical comfort. Mm-hmm. And today you have taken that rock called chemical comfort mm-hmm. and you have thrown it in that still pond right in the middle where you'll never be able to find it again and watch those ripples come out and fade away. And you have given up your right for chemical comfort and you have surrendered. Wow. And that was at seven years. <laughs> some are, some of us are slower than others. Oh, that's amazing. Sometimes quickly and that's, sometimes slowly. This is one of my favorite stories. Yeah. Yeah. We, I talk about it a lot on this podcast that, that just because you come in and you get a sobriety date and you get the literature and you start working the steps and you got your little three month chip, which is awesome. I, I'm not, I'm not purporting that you're going to be all the way healthy by the, by the 90 day point <laughs> or, or the one year point. Uh, you're going to continue to have miracles. If you're lucky to lucky enough to get in here and stay in here and get some traction, you know, in, in your multiple years, multiple years, it's just going to keep playing out. Uh, I got a, got a question about that detective uh, that helped you get into green Oaks. You said you speak to him still occasionally. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I do. And it's a great part of the story. And that is um, after the first year, you know, I wanted to go tell this guy that I was still sober and that, and thank him for intervening in my life. And so I contacted the police department. He called me back and he came over to my house and I met him and I said, you know, I'm in Alcox Anonymous and um, I've been sober. I don't put anything in my body to make me feel differently than I do. I do this service work. I do that, you know, and I want to really thank you for intervening in my life that day and how kind you were and how gentle you were and how you steered me to my sobriety. And for that, I, I just, I'm willing to do, if there's anything I can ever do from you, when you run across people that are in this situation, like I was in, you know, if there's any way I can help you with that, I'm available. Yeah. So please help me. And he said, you know, this is amazing. He said, we see people on the very worst days of their lives. And then we just generally don't see him again. And we don't know how the story pans out. And it's so cool to see how your story's panning out. Wow. And so I thank you for that. Yeah. And so every Christmas, uh-huh. because it happened at Christmas time, yeah, December yeah. 7th, 2010, yeah. 
I get in touch with him and let him know I'm still around. I'm still doing this. Okay. We've become really good friends. I send him Christmas cards. I have his home address. I have his home phone number. Is he still working at the same police department? And he still is with the Holland Park Police Department. Wow. It sounds like you know what he was doing. He handled you with, like, he handled you perfectly. With a velvet glove. Yeah. The way that he spoke to you, the terms he spoke to you in, the patience he showed. Oh, and, and my ex-wife was really pushing, and rightly so, mm-hmm. endangerment of a child, possession mm-hmm. of, you know, probably some kind of drug. Mm-hmm. Um, they did end up, I won't go into that part of the story, but they did end up searching the house while I was at Green Oaks. Oh. And, um, <laughs> For guns and stuff, right? And whatever. Well, before we left, you mentioned that. Before we left that day, he yeah. said, you know, I'd feel a whole lot more comfortable if you'd put the guns back in the gun safe. And so I did. And I had them positioned all over the house. I was ready for what work. you did and, under the couch, um, oh, all the ammunition low. So that if no. I was, you know, going through a hail of gunfire, I could get to the ammunition. Um, oh I was psychotic. Yeah. And so I, uh, so I put all those guns back in the gun safe. Uh-huh. Well, when I was at green Oaks, the reason I was kept overnight uh-huh. was they said, we're not releasing you with all those guns in your house. The, and so they got a search and warrant. So no, they said, you know, you need to call somebody and get them to get the guns out of the house before we'll let you go. And so what happened? So I called my big sister. She drove up from Ryan college station. Oh, no. She went into my house. She opened up the gun safe. She yeah. was trying to unload guns. She was unfamiliar with, uh-huh. which I told them up front was a very bad idea. Uh-huh. Being a hunter, I know better. Yeah. And, and she discharged one of the guns in the house <sighs> and she knew the police would come at Highland park. Nothing goes unnoticed. And so she, allowed them to come in and while they were in there yeah they searched the rest of the house for whatever they could find and dude that stresses me out yeah (laughs) (laughs) that stresses me out yeah okay so we're coming to the end of the show are there any parting well i was let me ask you this and then let me ask you if you want to go down another path before you answer this question here's the question do you have any parting thoughts for your for our audience okay so there's the question so here's another question we had a guest on in the previous episode who talked about that you were there and you helped him get a ride from jail to the 24 hour club. Do you want to, do you want to dip into that? Did you listen to that podcast yeah, yet? No, I haven't listened to it yet. I know exactly who you're talking yeah, about. I don't know if you want to do your in side the of the middle, story. In the middle of uh take, I take meetings to the Dallas County jail. And of course we were going in person and, and he came to me at the beginning of the meeting and he said, I'm going to be released. And I was like, it's the County jail. We're all going to get released. And, mm-hmm. He said, no, I mean like today. And so I said, well, when you get out, give me a call. Here's my number. And um, do you you know where you're going? He said, I don't. I said, well, there's a place and I have some contacts and we can get you into the Dallas 24-hour club. And so I got outside that day after the meeting. And he, right in the middle of the meeting, they came in and they were like, you know, shouted out his name. Mm-hmm. And he was getting released. Yeah, and he called it making chain. Yeah, making chain. They came to him. They're like, yeah. Gabriel, you've made Cat, chain. Catching chain, actually. Oh, okay. I don't know it, the jail he, guy. Yeah, he, cut, he caught chain. He catching chain, yes. Yeah. And so he um, was being released. So at the end of the meeting, after I came outside, I hung around outside for a minute and looked around. Well, I didn't know that I would recognize him because they're all in gray and white stripes. Uh-huh. And when this is in inside. Fort Worth? No, this is Dallas County. Okay, it's Lou Starrett. Okay. okay. And so I... Uh, I hung around for a minute and I didn't see him. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead and left. Right. And I got home and my phone rang uh-huh. and my niece and my daughter were there and they were about eight. And, <laughs> you said they and, were and I was, you know, and I was babysitting. And so oh um, 
I w- he was like, okay, well, I'm out. And I was like, okay, well, just stand there. We'll be back in a minute. And I looked over at the girls and I said, come on, let's go. And they uh, were like, where are we going? And I said, we're going down to the jail. And they were like, why are we doing that? And I said, we're picking up a prisoner. And they were like, no, really? Yeah, two little eight-year-old <laughs> girls are like, what? So my little, my niece had her little, you know, miniature four-inch Swiss Army knife in her hand the whole time, <laughs> thinking she was going to protect herself. And we okay, went and picked sure. Gabriel up and we took him over to the 24-hour club. And yeah. And that's where his journey started, and and I was his sponsor for the first several years of his sobriety, and and uh, it was a great ride. And you didn't really know him from j- just from the meetings, just though, right? from the meeting. And I you, saw him once a week for an hour. For how long? Like a few a few months. I don't even know. Yeah, he said he was in there about ninety days plus. Yeah, not long. So golly, man. And so, but that's what we do. You know, we 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 know that God will take care of us if we're doing His work. Yeah, that's really kind of the theme of my story. Is if if I'm doing His work well, He'll take care of mine. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a powerful story. That matches up exactly to what he said. That's, that's amazing. Um, I've done some, some and he was like one that. of those who had been estranged from his children. He wanted his kids back. He'd heard mm-hmm. my story mm-hmm. and just felt a connection. Yeah. 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 You got to listen to that uh, podcast with him. He talks about, um, and I've been thinking about it last night when I went to bed, we recorded it yesterday and he's talking about a letter that he wrote to his mother while he was in there. And that, that was the most powerful part of the podcast mm. to me okay so let's go back to the original question do you have any parting thoughts for our audience anything you anything you want to say wrap it up well we've mentioned it several times and you know the thing is it's exactly the opposite of what you thought you thought the worst thing that could ever happen is you would have to quit drinking and using drugs and it turns out to be the best thing i ever did i thought the worst thing that could happen is i'd be locked up in green oaks that day turned out to be the best thing that could ever happen it turned out losing my daughter, I knew, was the worst thing in the world that could ever happen. But it gave me the time and it gave me the focus to get into recovery and to do it right. So it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. I thought losing the girl that I really liked, you know, even though she was a drug addict, I thought losing her would be a horrible thing. Turned out to be a pretty good thing. It, it proves over and over every day, I don't know what's good and bad for me. Some, the book talks about some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. You only have to change one thing, and that's everything. All and everything means all of your old ideas. You know, this person's you know right, and that person's wrong. This political party's right, that one's wrong. I mean, all of my old ideas, I just have to be honest about how I feel, I have to be open-minded to possibility, and I have to be willing to accept what's going on. And if I can do those three things, I think I got a pretty good chance of staying sober the rest of the day. Right on. That is so fantastic. Um, So would you like to give our listeners any of your contact information so they can reach out to you and find out more about service work opportunities or if they have questions for you do you want to give your email address out? sure um they can always contact me at g-o-e tad t-a-d b for black that's my last name at a at gmail.com that stands for gathering of eagles tad b um it's a convention where we um that we do once a year on memorial day weekend it was started 35 years ago um, by a man who was a pioneer of AA in Dallas. And um, you can also call, you can also always reach me at my home group. It's the Preston Group. And their phone number is 
1107. And they can just leave a, a message there with you with the secretary and you'll see it. They can. Yeah, they'll reach out to you. I know how to get in touch with you. Yeah, you, you can find Tad. He's easily findable. I want to thank you for joining us on Sober Shares today. This has been a moving experience, and I appreciate your sharing your story with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, thank you for joining Sober Shares. We will see you on the next episode.